Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 17th episode of the Not A Cast entitled Fly or Die, an analysis of a Game of Thrones brand three in which Brandon Stark takes a hero's journey beyond the infinite. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., and Hayden J. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. And we have a special guest on the podcast today, perfectly appropriate for this most trippy and mythical of A Song of Ice and Fire chapters. You may know him as Lucifer Means Lightbringer or at the Dragon LML on Twitter. Uh, the Winter King, the High Priest of <laughs> Mythical Astronomy, is David Beers. Hey there, guys. Are you, you going to call me Dave or are you going to call me LML? What's the plan here? Whatever is you're most comfortable Gosh, with. Uh, I mean, it sounds pretentious for me to ask you to call me LML, but most people do call me LML, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll just have to roll with either. I mean, it's not like a secret identity type of thing, but yeah, no, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, my website is lucifermeanslightbringer.com. I do go by LML around the internet because it's a little easier to say, and my podcast is called The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, where we talk about symbolism and mythology in a way that's way more fun than it sounds. <laughs> it's actually uh, an amazing website and uh, an amazing podcast too. I've enjoyed all of the essays you've written. I can't say I've always understood them because I'm 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 a simple pleb, as we all know. Uh, but they're definitely chock full of amazing, awesome material that pretty much every fucking person who's listening to this should be listening to and or reading. Yeah, the simple way to damn straight, especially. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh man. no, uh, feel free to flatter me shamelessly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to add my compliments to Jeff's and say, especially when it comes to a chapter like this, uh, Brand 3 of oh, Game yeah. of Thrones, if you want to analyze a chapter like this, or The House of the Undying, or The Forsaken, uh, you know, obviously everyone knows those chapters are heavy on imagery and symbolism, but something LML does really well is connect that to stuff that's going on under the surface in the seemingly more mundane chapters, which is what I really like about your work, is finding those links in unexpected places. Yeah, I was going to say, sometimes you have to look a little harder. The symbolism might be in the food or somebody's dress or a passing description of the clouds. Uh, but then we have chapters where, you know, George is thinking back to his days eating acid following the Grateful Dead. And we get something <laughs> like the Forsaken or, you know, the House of the Undying. And yeah, those those ones of symbolisms like kind of flying at you. You know, it's not, not a little bit yeah. less subtle, but the thing is that it's a whole different thing to say what it means because all of these dreams have the sort of mundane level interpretations or the not mundane but sort of the plot centric interpretations but then there's also the symbolic interpretations will sort of ride piggyback on top of those and usually they enhance and complement each other and the more you can tease out the more colorful the scene becomes that's the way i'd put it yeah i think that's a great way of putting it and uh you know we're super freaking excited to have you on for this podcast because uh, this is, uh, I wouldn't call this a mundane chapter, but it's definitely like one of those acid-dropping chapters that you referenced uh, just before. It's definitely one of those chapters that's uh, extremely rich in some crazy, uh, I don't know what you would call it, some crazy symbolism and crazy trippy dream sequences that Martin, I think, had a whole lot of fun doing in this chapter. Yeah, it's very rooted in the 60s and the 70s stuff that he draws from culturally in a lot of ways. Uh, and yeah, it does have that classic uh, drug fiction thing where you get the sense you're both cutting to the core of things, like the absolute heart and meaning of what's going on, 
but it's also being blown up into this mythical imagery. It's like trying trying to do both those things at the same time. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because we have a uh, we have some great questions here. But before we get into them, our spoiler warning, as we say in all podcasts, this podcast will have spoilers for all the published books. That is the five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So I hope that you all have enjoyed our recent Patreon episode entitled Why is the Winds Winter Taking So Goddamn Long to Come Out? Uh, that was a fun episode that Emma and I did. And if you are a subscriber on a Patreon for $10 or more a month, you have the opportunity to do um, to ask us a question. And we got a, a bunch of really great questions you this did, hold week. On, hold um, on. You didn't really release yeah. an episode called whatever it is you just said, did you? We absolutely did. I, I will. You, you're going to have to listen to this after we record this. I'm going to send you the uh, the audio file for it because it's uh, two hours and forty one minutes of amazingness, right? I, I would call it amazingness, right? I, yeah, I think so. This could go one of two ways. Uh, now, I could increase my Patreon amount to get access to this free episode because when I signed up, I wasn't sure if you were charging per episode or per month. I was afraid to sign up for ten bucks a month because I thought you might hit me for ten bucks an episode and like destroy my bank account. No. So, uh, I was planning no, on bumping no, no. up to the $10 level so I can get your uh, advanced episodes, but it might lead to me canceling my membership from the from the sounds of it. I think you are going to be pleasantly surprised at our oh, take okay. right. on it. I think you would, you'll would you like what we have to say. I, I think I could say that, right? I think so. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I see. So I, it's, it's more the title that is an exercise in trolling as opposed to the content. Correct. See, you're, that's, you're learning. You're that's, that's the <laughs> subtitle to the whole podcast, my friend. I get it. Okay. That's the caption. <laughs> we're so deep in layers of sarcasm. We're like those teens in The Simpsons. Are you being sarcastic, dude? I don't even know anymore. A, a Russian <laughs> nesting doll of sarcasm. All right, let's let yes. Bender B. Fish honor his patrons, loyal patrons, with their user-submitted questions. All right. So our first question comes from Sir Milady Weideman, who asks, Not sure if you guys talked about this in one of your episodes, but which are your favorite actors in the show? especially those who are slightly different from their book descriptions. David, you get first dibs on this. Who is your favorite actor in the show? And bonus if it's slightly different from the book description. Well, I, I probably... Let's see. Bonus if it's different. Okay, I'll give you one that's the same and one that's different. Because mm-hmm. I, I like it usually when the actors bring the character to life, like you know Charles Dance does for Tywin or something. But yes. I would have to say Sirio Forrell's one of my favorite actual actors. And this is partially because... I keep consistently hearing stories about the actor that plays Sirio is just this awesome guy that every time he <laughs> talks to somebody leaves them with some sort of cute little story that they have to run around and tell everyone. So he seems like an absolute, you know, just what he looks like on the TV, like his smiles infectious, a lot of just happy energy. So I forget. Do you know the guy's name? I'm embarrassed. Um, Something Greek. I don't know off the top of my head. He's my, great. M- Miltos. Why? Miltos. Some- Yes. Yeah, Miltos something or other. That's right. And uh, uh, Zora Hype, I believe, did an interview with him at Con of really? Thrones just past this weekend, which will be coming out soon. So, yeah, yeah, he was everywhere. There was I heard like three different people how nice he was. So give him some props. And then as far as uh, the other actors that I really like, uh, I mentioned Charles Dance. Uh, is it totally shameless for me to say Amelia Clark? No, not at all. I <laughs> love Amelia. Actually, it's that's it's more of a you know that there's. The writers, I think, screw her up more than the actress. But uh, true, I, that's more. It's more of a joke about me being in love with Mia Clark. Uh, so, well, it's kind of hot. 
it's kind of a hot take because there, Amelia Clark gets a lot of heat from fans for her performance as Daenerys, and I, I think unjustly so. But I mean, that does come up. I, I've heard it at least a fair amount from uh, from folks about whether she's actually does a good Daenerys or not. And I think it's a. Um, I think she does a good job as Daenerys for sure. I think it's hit or miss based on the lines they give her. Essentially, that's that's the biggest factor. Um, when you have you guys seen Solo yet? I mean, I won't spoil it, but have you seen it yet? I yes. have not. She's great in it, in my opinion. And really, uh, I, I thought I found her character to be not only the most interesting character in the movie, uh, but one of the more interesting characters that's been in Star Wars. And the tension sort of relationship between her and Solo is the main thing that really hooked me in the entire movie. And interesting. I was emotionally really hooked in that movie and other people you know have the typical criticisms of the laser guns and the force and (laughs) but i didn't like i didn't notice any of that and sometimes i get hung up on that but i didn't notice any of that because i was hooked in emotionally and amelia clark was awesome so i tend to think she's awesome and it's it's the lines that occasionally lead to the bad scene it's like when they do they overdo the imperialist you know but uh, i am Daenerys and i declare this that sort of grates on people but again i think that's the writing so yeah yeah i agree I think she's. I think she does fine when the material like given to her is worthwhile. I remember she was, I terrible in Terminator Genesis, but that's not even a movie. That's just like a series of remember this that happened in Terminator movies <laughs> strung together in the form of a script. Uh, yeah, I think she's much better in Solo because there's actually a story to work with. And in the show, I think she does really well in one-on-one scenes, but yeah, not yeah. when she has to give speeches. Uh, because they oh, tend to know, be bad true. speeches, and she's mm. feels like she's delivering them to empty air, and there's just there's not a there's not the grandness you kind of need when the the mother of dragons is talking. You know, it feels it feels a little lacking. But I I, I think that's yeah more the writing, the staging, uh, maybe the directing on set. Who knows? But yeah, those moments never work pretty well, particularly well for well, me. Emmett, Emmett, that's a great example of why I like your analysis. Is you often tell me why it is that I feel the way I feel about something. <laughs> so, well Thanks, done, buddy. So. I try. I guess the, the just to finish up the quick example of a character that's different from the books but that succeeds really well is it would be Cersei, right? Cersei. Yes, yeah, classic. Yeah. She's yeah. she's different but very awesome. Like I I love TV shows Cersei to the point where I don't really care that it's different because that's one of the things in the TV show that's working. Yeah, I couldn't yeah, agree I more. Agree with that. What about you, Emmett? What who's who? What actress do you like the most in the show, and especially bonus points if it's if it's different from their uh, their book portrayal? Uh, the one I really like that's slightly different from his book portrayal is Michael. Is it McHackleton? McHackleton? How, do, how how does one pronounce his last name? The guy who plays Bruce Bolton is who I'm talking Mac, about. Yeah, McHackleton or something like that. Yeah, Mac, Michael McHackleton. Yeah, he's he's fantastic because I think the uh, the showrunners and the writers realized okay, as fun as it is in the books when Bruce Bolton has like the leeches and the soft voice that no one can hear, that makes it... You put that on screen, and it makes it impossible to ignore what was already kind of a problem which in, in the books, which is why is Rob Stark trusting this man with anything, let alone half of his right. army? And yeah, I think if they'd gone full Bond villain, as Roos is in the books, with him on the show, it would have been impossible to get past that, and it would have been too obvious that he was going to betray Rob. So I think that they went for the that the other aspect of Roos, which is that he seems mundane, but there's something really creepy about him and no one can quite put their finger on what it is. I think McAlton nailed that as Roos. That that aspect where he's not, he's not necessarily saying anything unusual. He's not necessarily doing anything unusual. He's not flamboyant the way Ramsey is, but something about him freaks everybody out. Uh, And I I think he really, he really captured that quality. And that's something I I really love about Roos Bolton. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, in terms of a character who I think just personally captures the 
the book character, an actor who perfectly captures the book character would be Conleth Hill as, as Varus. Yes. I think just, just nails, like he walked off the page. I've, I've loved him from the very start. Again, uh, he's yeah. not always given the best material, but he, I feel like he's an actor who transcends even when he's given weak material. He still sells it really well. So he's, yeah. I've, always, I've always enjoyed him on the show. Yeah, for sure. What I about you, I just, I, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but no, go for it. original Lord Commander Mormont was pretty great too, wasn't he? Yeah, what's that guy's James Cosmo? He really yes, was like right yes. off the pages of the book too to me. Yes, he's very much the old bear, and he even looks like an old bear too. Uh, he was in Braveheart, if I remember as well. He's one of the uh, the clan chieftains, so he's a excellent actor. For for me, I, I would say the one that's closest to the books that I really enjoy a lot um, is Ian McKelleny, who plays Sir Barristan Selby. Is basically how I picture Sir Barristan now, and there's no way I'm going to read The Winds of Winter and read about. Barristan surviving the Battle of Fire and betraying Daenerys Targaryen <laughs> uh-huh. without picturing Ian McK- without picturing Ian McKelleny as the uh, as the person doing that and uh, but and and I think he's he just has that he has a um, a gravitas to himself that Sir Barristan seems to exude at points they did kind of change him a little bit in so much as they made him a bit more. Um, a bit more noble than the barrister of the books is. So I'm not, so it might be, he like, he looks the part, he speaks the part, but he might not necessarily be as char- characterized as closely um, from, from the book version. Uh, one that's a little bit kind of out there, and this will be kind of a little bit controversial is that I really like uh, Euron Greyjoy in, in the show. Uh, I've kind of had a turnaround about this in, in recent months, uh, mm-hmm. kind of rewatching season six and season seven and seeing the way that um, what's that dude's name? I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Who plays Euron Greyjoy? He's a Danish actor. Can't think oh. of his name. I don't Man. know many of the names at all. Yeah, exactly. No, we're falling. All. We're falling short, John. One. No, I don't. Know, I don't know his name off the top of my head either. Yeah, but I feel like he does an interesting adaptation of Euron Greyjoy. He's definitely not the Euron Greyjoy of the books for sure. And the material is given is not necessarily for the best but i do like him as kind of this swaggering dude full of machismo um i think it uh, i i do wonder you know you had talked about how um would a character work which character did you cite the one that would not necessarily work oh you said Ruth bolton wouldn't necessarily work in in the uh, in the show i'm not sure that a metaphysical or metaphysical threat to the world apocalyptic euron Greyjoy would necessarily work in the show either uh, necessarily, so I like that kind of version of Euron Greyjoy. Is this kind of basically a combination of Victarion and Euron into one character? Uh, I think that he's a, he's a great actor and great uh, great character. It's a Pillu Asbeck. Pillu Asbeck. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, he said, I actually. I, oh, yeah. are we are we in a hurry to agree with him on this one? Because I actually no. like him too. But go ahead, Quentin. Oh, I was going to say no. I feel better about forgetting his name because I he was talking about the character on Twitter and I sent him the transcript I did of the Forsaken. And he said nice things about that, so I was felt bad about forgetting his name. He's a, he seems like a stand-up dude. But anyway, yeah. go. But yeah, I mean, I like I like I like I like the the character. I like the act the performance in and of it himself. I, I can't help but be disappointed at the lack of book Euron because he's one of my favorites. But I agree, Jeff, that the blue lips and the and the eye patch and the and the sorcery that's that's an area where you see a Song of Ice and Fire be much better adapted into an animated format for stuff yeah. like that than I think live action could ever handle in a way that did look ridiculous. But uh, go for it, LML. Well, my nickname for Euron is Pirate Odin on Bad Acid. <laughs> so, and you're right. Pretty it's, much. It is, it's, it's, it's a little harder to translate uh, to TV. So 
I like Emmett was a little broken hearted just, you know, when it was like, oh, no blue lips and oh, there's no this and no that and no dragon horn. And but of course you stop and realize, well, OK, I guess I guess it sort of makes sense. Bloody, bloody, bloody. And to me, though, the character really won me over when they did the sea battle and he was like jumping across from ships, yes. swinging his axe around like a madman. I mean, I, there was some genuine like it was genuinely terrifying. Uh, and so it. At the at the end of the day, it was like that's Euron's job is is to communicate the terror the terror of like a night raid from a bunch of crazy pirates. Like it is terrifying when you're on the sea on a boat. I mean, everything is really real. You're running out of food. That's real. You know, if you're if you if you're taking on water, that's real. That's a big problem. Everything is dicey, and all of a sudden, your whole world is being rocked. You've got these maniacs like jumping onto your boat and killing all of your friends. Like. That's a terrifying experience, and they they captured that moment, and he was very effective at sort of at the center of that, pushing that button. And so, yeah. to me, I was like, okay, I like this character. Agreed. Yeah, I I, I agree. So, I mean, I, I've had a turnaround of my own thoughts about Pillu Aspec, and I apologize, Pillus, if you ever listen to this podcast for us messing up your name. Hope you keep listening to our episodes. Um, so, great question, uh, Sir Milady Wideman. And our next question comes from Sir Andrew B, who asks. How much of Robert's sense of loss and subsequent rage at Rhaegar do you think we can directly attribute to the loss of Lyanna herself, as opposed to all the other traumas that loss is tied up in? Hmm. That's a good question. Tis. I mean, I mean Robert didn't lose as much as Ned in, in that war, in terms of just family members lost. Uh, Robert's big family trauma was earlier in his life, when uh, his, his parents went down uh, with the Windproud on uh, Shipbreaker's Bay. I mean, I definitely think that Robert associates the loss of Lyanna with uh, the loss of his kind of dream of youth and his innocence and his easy athleticism uh, when there were no consequences for things. And I and I think he has this thing in his head where he feels like he got tricked and ended up with Cersei. Like he was supposed to end yep. up with Lyanna and then the universe screwed him over and gave him a woman he hates. So I think I think he is I think he has mythologized Lyanna more and more, the more dysfunctional his relationship with Cersei gets because he's holding her up as an as you know a, what you know what shining Emmett, you example. Know, I'm going to stop you from paraphrasing your girlfriend anymore, and uh, <laughs> just tell everyone to actually just go listen to Girls Gone Canon because they they rinsed this issue like really thoroughly a couple yeah, episodes this is ago. True. This is true. They absolutely dropped the mic on this one. They explained it very well. It's very much a matter of, just like Emmett was saying, it's Robert's delusions of youth. And it was never really about Leanna, but sort of his fictional version of Leanna. And I think his hatred of Rhaegar goes back to his own delusions. And I don't even want to answer the question other than to just say, go listen to that, because they already did it so well. Well put, sir. Very true. Yeah. yeah. That's and shout out, to, shout out to Girls Gone Canon, obviously. Absolutely, they're a great podcast, and uh, everyone should be listening to them for sure because they've got they're going through uh, Eddard uh, Stark's chapters right now. So their their concept is they're doing uh, point of view um, podcasts. So they're going through all of Eddard's chapters from a Game of Thrones right now, and then they'll eventually uh, finish up Eddard. And I believe, well, I don't actually, I don't think I can say what they're doing next, but I, I do. They're doing they're, next, they're doing excited. the Martells, Sansa, Barristan. Those are the next few. But yeah, you can find a. Girls Gone Canon on Twitter and the, their individual accounts, uh, Chloe's at Liza Arbor and Eliana at Arithmetric. Uh, so yes. you should definitely definitely check them out if you have not yet. They do awesome work. I really like that format because George writes that way. He writes several chapters yeah. for each character at a time. And before sure. he re- writes a new chapter for a character, he goes back and reads several 
going, you know, before that that uh, that he's done out of that character's voice. So I think it's a really good way. There's a lot of things you'll notice by re- rereading the books that way, and I was excited to see them pick that format. So yeah, for very, sure, very cool, very cool. Yes, indeed. So our thank you, Sir Andrew, for the question. Our final question for the question segment comes from Lady B Word who does fantastic riddles on Twitter. If you follow her on Twitter, uh, I, I never understand the riddles. I never get them until I actually read the replies because, again, I'm a pleb on these things, on most things, really. Um, but she asks, I posed the same question to the Davos Fingers podcast, which is a great other podcast that we all enjoy, I think. And But I'm curious on your answers. If you lived in Westeros, what religion would you follow? David, I'm going to save you for last because I imagine you're going to have a lot of thoughts on this. And I'm just going to go to Emmett first on this one. Relore, next question. <laughs> no, in all, in all seriousness, I don't like burning people, but I think there is a consistent connection between uh, the Red God and movements of uh, downtrodden and oppressed people that we see in the series. Uh, that pops up in the Riverlands when you have Beric and Thoros going out to uh, defend the common people from both fighting classes, which uh, the, the well-fed elites of the Faith of the Seven are not doing, and the Old Gods are kind of more passively observing than anything else. And then you see it in Essos too, when uh, the the great gathering at Volantis of Relorite slaves are you know calling for Dana to come break their chains and accept the the title of, of Azor High Reborn. Um, even Melisandre has kind of worked her way up in the world, albeit through some horrible means, uh, thanks to Relor. I think that's not to excuse the horrible things a lot of the Red God's adherents do. I think the question there was supposed to be how much how how far are you willing to go in the name of a of a good cause. I think you see that happen to the, the Brotherhood over the Ark of Storm and Feast as it kind of sours from Beric to Stoneheart. But, uh, it's, you know, I, I, would, I would rather try to work within that faith because it's at least attempting to uh, lift up the people who are being kind of crunched under the war machine in both Westeros and Essos. And I feel like the other faiths for all their virtues and drawbacks, aren't really addressing that. The old gods seem to regard it as collateral damage, as far as we can tell. And uh, the faith of the seven, even when they go full populist, they end up doing so in a way that is already starting to look really, really bad. So, yeah. if if I, I say I say only with I say only with twenty five percent trolling relore. Go ahead, go ahead. David. <laughs> no, that's no. You raise a really interesting point. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're totally right. In Volantis, uh, the Reloras are basically. Relorism is the religion of the of the slaves, uh, by and large, and it seems to be set up that they're going to lead a full-on slave rebellion uh, now that they have their savior, yeah. Daenerys Targaryen. To me, it um, reminds me of early-stage Christianity, uh, when it was not the majority religion, and it was in the Roman Empire, and it really was something that was like metastasizing among more poor and working-class people, and then eventually Christianity becomes a state religion. And, you know, perhaps uh, if Daenerys conquers Westeros, then that, that'll happen. I mean, not, not probably not, but I always think that uh, Martin, Martin thinks about religions, um, you know, as just like everything else, as characters that evolve. And so it's interesting to look at these religions in different cities and see what kind of status they are and who they're speaking up for and who their adherents are. So that was just a really cool point I wanted to expand on because I had never really put that together. Because the Reloris, like you said, they're obviously... They're, Obviously horrible on their face when we see shadow babies and burning people alive and stuff. But you're totally right. They are the the religion of the slaves, at least in Essos. Yeah, I wonder if people might look back. I mean, who knows, of course, who will be left after the next long night, what, what kind of situation Westerosian associate civilization will be in. But I wonder if people might look back on 
the atrocities of Relorism as the, uh, like, you know, re- regrettable, overzealous attitudes of the one true faith in the way that people look back on, you know, the yeah. a lot of radical early Christians or, you know, a lot of radical early members of any faith that grows to be dominant. Um, that's, again, that doesn't remotely excuse it. I just think uh, Relor's historical context might end up being more than just the scary fire god, as awesome as the yeah. scary fire god can be. Well, as, it's, as, it's just this whole... Uh, What's the whole black and white theme that Martin is just beating into our brains on every level is like there is no one thing that is pure, good or evil, hardly like everything is the same guy that pushed Bran out of the window, saved King's Landing and may do something heroic in the future. And you don't have to decide whether Jamie is a rotten onion or a good onion because every, you know, we're all half rotten onions in the uh, Davos philosophy, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, for me on religions, I, I think selfishly, I would probably follow the fertility God from the summer Isles. Cause that seems like fun. <laughs> um, Good point. I didn't, I didn't know you were that. such a hippie. No. Yeah, exactly. I, I have that, that side to myself deep, deep, deep down inside. Um, but I also think about too, about like, what would you, what, what religion would you follow if you were living in, say, the Stormlands or King's Landing or the Westerlands or the North? And you think that the majority of the population of Westeros lives south of the Neck, so they're likely to be followers of the Faith of the Seven. So I guess I would say that if you grow up in the atmosphere that follows, or in a family that follows the Faith of the Seven, then you would probably follow the Faith of the Seven, right? I think that's probably the most likely course of action. Uh, I, I, of course, would probably not be in favor of the Faith Militant, and some of the uh, the Sparrow movement of, that's going on, you, could, you can definitely see the appeal in it of all the war atrocities that build up into the faith of the Seven adapting itself into this radical um, philosophy. And I think Martin has compared it to the Protestant Reformation. And then for for those of you guys who don't know, I'm I am a Protestant uh, Christian on uh, in, in IRL. But uh, so I'm <laughs> curious if uh, hold, on, hold on, hold on, wait. Does your faith get checked at the door when you go into the to the fake world of a song of ice and fire? Mm, kind of. I mean, I have to when I when I look at things, I do have to like view things in kind of a more objective light and looking at Martin's world because I don't want to when I when I look and analyze and think about a song of ice and fire, I want it to be, you know, I, I do take my biases into it, obviously, but I do try and reduce them maybe as much as possible in order to kind of get at the point of of what Martin's trying to communicate. So some of like Martin's thematics and different things that he believes in his uh, atheism, and might not necessarily uh, agree with it on a personal level, but I have to acknowledge it and acknowledge what it means in, in the series. And you know, death of the author and all that aside, you know, look at Martin's you know personal life and be able to take a look at a Song of Ice and Fire and determine what things might have emanated from the personal experiences that Martin has. Uh, for instance, like in this chapter, we'll probably be talking a little bit about Martin's experience growing up in the, uh, or not even growing up, but in, in his college experiences as a hippie in the 60s and early 70s and how that impacts like a chapter like this. So I would, yeah, that's a, that's a long answer to a, to well, a short I meant, question. I meant it as a total tease, but um, I, <laughs> <laughs> but actually in a, in a more serious light, um, Christianity informs Martin's writing hugely. And it's not just because he was raised Catholic and he can't forget those ideas. It's because he's somebody that 
has not thrown the baby out with the bathwater when moving from like a relig- more religious upbringing to the point where he might call himself an atheist or an agnostic. I yeah. think he's, and I'm in the same boat. Like I was raised Christian. I don't claim to be a Christian now. I'm someone who appreciates all religions, but I mm-hmm. went through a phase where, or let me just translate this. So I was yeah. raised in the faith of the seven. And uh, at about 16 or 17, I began to question it. I began reading some Starry Wisdom tracks, and I fell in with a renegade priest of Valor, and I started hearing different ideas, and I eventually came to hate all organized religion, uh, you know, especially the faith of the seven for, their, for the way that they abuse people and enforce uh, gender patriarchy and stuff. So, uh, but eventually, I realized that there's a lot of things to be learned from the seven-pointed star, and that I should not... Uh, hold that philosophy necessarily, you know, accountable just because of a few bad high septons. And so now I feel like I've can appreciate all the things I learned from my faith at the seven upbringing, even if I don't worship the seven anymore. Nicely translated. That's a great answer. (laughs) And even if you don't believe in the literal divinity of any of the characters in question, they're still good stories and you should still like draw from them when you're writing good stories. And Martin understands that, that there's still... You know, there's a, the reason Catholic teachings often stick with you even after you leave the faith is in part because loud women beat them into you with rulers, but also because there's some real like <laughs> there's some real heft and like moral intensity to the stories you want to keep around. It's I think it's interesting that even though uh, Stannis is contextualized with this kind of more uh, Manichaean religion from the East kind of thing going on with R'hllor, if you just take his character in isolation, he feels very biblical and Old Testamenty and like you know yes. He's, He's come to to get you for your sins, kind of guy, um, and that's like so. Martin, that's clearly informing the characters, and you know, and you can still sense his emotional attachment to those stories, even as he's moved away from maybe the larger moral underpinnings of them. He doesn't necessarily agree with anymore. Yeah, it's a really cool. We point. got like forty five minutes of podcast here, Dan. <laughs> yeah. uh, based on the opening two questions, this is great. And uh, so my answer. Oh, I already gave my answer. So. I'm the high priest of starry wisdom, so I guess that has to be my answer. Shock. Note the shock and surprise coursing across our faces, element at this, at this <laughs> I, pronouncement. I, I did have a lot to say, but I was too excited to wait my turn, and I shoved it in the middle of your turn, so I'm done now. No, it was good. It was, it was awesome. I think that's uh, your example with the faith of the seven and translating it from your own personal experiences is uh, excellent, and you should write about that sometime. I'm serious. I, actually, to be honest, Jeff, this is going to be the first book that I ever write is going to be about processing my religious upbringing and helping to come to terms with it in a modern world without, like I was saying, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I've talked about it uh, in a couple of my essays, and Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that people contact me the most about to say, this actually is great and resonated with me perfectly. I had somebody come to me in tears at Con of Thrones talking about this very thing, and I've shed a few tears myself just like processing this stuff. And I mean, everybody, most of us in Western society were raised religious in some way and a lot of people had negative experiences to varying degrees and I feel like we just all have so much healing to do so that people don't become absolutely 100% literally minded and throw out everything they've learned and throw out the idea that there's more than the physical world and like you're like Emmett was saying all the teachings and philosophy that um, you know and, and even just the institution of church for example like it's a valid thing for a community to come together and to share values and to you know, have cookouts and go on retreats and worship together and pray together and share concern for each other. Like these are valuable societal roles that get filled one way or the other, whatever country it is and whatever, whether it's polytheism or monotheism, like there's always a church of some kind. 
It's a yeah. community gathering. So yeah, man, I, thanks. Thanks for encouraging me. I'm, I'm definitely fired up about that topic. And I think Martin touches on it all over the place. He's not someone who's like bitter against his religion. He is really fascinated with religious philosophy and comparative religion. And I've come to see mythology and religion as basically all being one at this point. Yeah. As a Jew. That's it. That's the whole sense. That's that's all I had to say. As uh, a Jew. As a Jew. No, I totally agree. One of the things I appreciate most about the series is that it doesn't come from like a South Park atheist perspective. Where it's like, no. haha, look at the dumb Not religious people. Which is the attitude no. I sometimes get from Game of Thrones, especially when it comes to the Sparrows. So yes. I'm. It, it's definitely refreshing to come back to the series when I think, as you said, it... it it takes the point of view that religion and mythology are kind of the same thing, or at least are, are dealing with the same metaphysical forces and answering the same questions, even if they don't realize they're on the same side. Well, it's mythology. Mythology is just really old religion, right? If, if you uh, want to say that, and and one, it's really old religion that we have felt comfortable translating into more secular seeming stories, even though you can still see the religious seeds if you go back far enough. Yeah, uh, I. I you know, I, I tend to view it in the Joseph Campbell lens, and it really is all just symbols and metaphors and themes and archetypes. And I, I just don't see, yeah, I mean, it's it's all great. Every religion has its own mythology, I guess you could say it that way, too. And mm-hmm. these are just powerful shapes and images, the crucified man, the tree of knowledge. These are these are concepts which echo through time. It's the things that we can we can share thoughts with people that lived three thousand years ago through these kinds of symbols. That's why they're yeah. powerful and transformative, and that's why Martin's use of symbols is worth making a podcast about. It's not just fun connecting the dots and going, "Oh, look, it's Mithras reference," or "Oh, look, it's you know." It's it's a lot more than that. It touches people on a deep level. Yeah, agreed, absolutely. And with that, and with that, I think that's a perfect intro to the chapter itself, Brand Three: it Game is. of Thrones. Jeffrey, will you take us away, sir? I can. Uh, but before we get into that, we do have one more question from James R., but we are going to save that for our theory section because it is all about this chapter. So, Sir James, cool. keep listening, dude. We got you, man. I remember you. We, but we all remember you, really. So, anyways, hope you guys enjoyed the questions. Thank you for those who asked it. And this is a Game of Thrones Bran 3. Bran Stark feels as though he's been falling for years. Fly, a voice whispers in the dark. But Bran does not know how to fly, or so he thinks. The boy flashes back to memories, from the past. Maester Lewin dressing a clay doll in Bran's clothes and throwing him from a roof. Bran telling Maester Lewin that he never falls. The ground is far below Bran for the time being, but again, Bran is still falling. Bran thinks that the danger isn't real, as in all his prior dreams, he awakens just before he hits the ground. And if you don't, the voice questions. The ground appears now, closer. And Bran wants to cry as he starts to think that maybe this time when he falls, he will smash into the ground. Not cry, fly, the voice challenges. Bran states again that he can't fly. How do you know? Have you tried? The voice then materializes as a crow flying around Bran as he's falling. Help me, Bran pleads with the crow. I'm trying, the bird responds. The crow then asks if Bran has any corn. Bran reaches into his pocket and retrieves corn and releases kernels into the air around him. Are you really a crow, Bran asks? Are you really falling, the crow responds, enjoying some of the falling corn. More questions, more tears from Bran. But tears won't do any good, the crow tells Bran. Instead, Bran needs to use a different kind of wings, and then fly. Bran looks himself over, thinking how he looks more gaunt, more skinny than remembers of himself. And then the face of Jamie Lannister comes into view, saying, The things I do for love. 
This sends Bran screaming and the crow urging Bran to put that memory aside for now, but Bran falls faster than before. The crow pecks Bran's head, telling him that he's teaching Bran to fly. Bran repeats that he doesn't know how to fly. He's only falling. Every flight begins with a fall, the crow replies. And then the crow tells Bran to look down. When Bran finally does so, he has visions of locations in the story, of the near past, the present, and the future, of characters known and mysterious, and we'll get to all those in our theory section. Now you know why you must live, the crow says, because winter is coming. Bran looks at the crow and sees that the bird has three eyes, with the third eye holding terrible knowledge. Then Bran looks again below and sees jagged blue-white spires of ice waiting to embrace him. He remembers his father's words, Can a man be brave if he is afraid? And then the crow tells Bran to make his choice, fly or die. Death reaches up for Bran, screaming, and Bran triumphantly spreads his wings and flies. And man, I definitely teared up when I reread that just now. It was extremely moving. Bran exclaims to the crow that he's flying. The crow says he noses, and then the crow begins pecking at the middle of his forehead. But in that instant, Bran awakens back to his room in Winterfell, with the pain still embedded in his head, and the sight of a washwoman. And then my daughter Libby added her own thoughts to the document while I was making dinner on Saturday night, and they were as follows. 899999 forward slash four slash one five four two six three two two five eight eight nine. Really nice points, Libby. Thank you for being a part of our podcast this week. So if you're playing the lottery... <laughs> those are the numbers that you want to use. Yeah, use those numbers. Hey, look, if, if those lottery people are looking for any kind of tip from the gods that they can get, and that is pretty, that's pretty much gold right there. Yes, follow the wisdom of a one-and-a-half-year-old for sure. <laughs> so anyways, uh, back to the story. The washerwoman drops her basin of water and goes running. Bran feels movement beside his bed and then senses his dire wolf jumping up to the bed with him. But he can't feel the dire wolf. He just knows he's there. A moment later, Bran's brother, Rob, bursts breathless into the room to the, to the direwolf licking Bran's face. His name is Summer, Bran calmly tells Rob. And that is the kick-ass chapter from Bran's perspective, his third chapter in the Game of Thrones. And man, what a freaking chapter. What wow. a chapter. Well summarized, sir, especially for a chapter that's pretty much 100% subtext. Uh, yes. Managed to, managed to get the actual text out of it very well. So every brand chapter has so far uh, aggressively expanded the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. The first chapter introduced us to the Starks, their direwolves, and a lot of the series' themes in Ned's conversation with Bran. The second really established Winterfell, arguably the most iconic and important setting in the series, and gave us the first of many unexpected traumatic twists in the story with Bran's fall. And now the third really gets into the scope of the magical plot, the ambition of Martin's structure and foreshadowing, and the sheer stylistic verve of the imagery he's using to bring all of it to life. Bran Stark is the closest Song of Ice and Fire has to a singular protagonist because his story cuts to the heart of things like this in a way no one else does. And in Bran 3, that manifests as a psychedelic journey of the mind, because what better way to reveal the context of everything that's going on than by force-feeding your Arthurian prince a handful of mescaline. Uh, the, the, quote from, <laughs> the quote from William Blake that Huxley used in Doors of Perception comes to mind here. Uh, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. And you can really <laughs> see that resonate in a chapter like this. This is personally one of my favorite chapters in A Game of Thrones, the first book. It's up there with Sansa 2, the Hans Turney chapter, and Arya 4, Syria's Last Stand. Uh, and as I've said about multiple chapters so far in this first book, that's true in large part because of how disastrously wrong this could have gone as a chapter. So much rides on this. It, it quite literally zooms out and takes in the entirety of the story and what it means and where it's going. Uh, it's the author giving us a glimpse into the, the source code of the narrative, uh, 
and he he risks boring us with this. He risks confusing yep. us. He risks us rolling our eyes at the self indulgence of this. Uh, he risks losing Brand's characterization and what's going on with his story amidst all of the metaphysical slurry. And uh, even if all of that works, he risks us not being able to effectively come back down from it to the rest of the story. He risks, you know, the blue calling to us forever. Um, and so because there's, you know, not really any plot points of import to discuss in this chapter, the big question for me becomes why it works so well. How does it avoid all those pitfalls and what makes such an impact about the chapter we get? I'm going to get a little more into the reasons, uh, I think, answer those questions a little later. But first, I want to hear from LML about his overall take on all this. Good sir. Well, I actually, I want to answer the exact question. Why does <laughs> this work? I just did a panel at Con of Thrones uh, this past weekend called What Makes George R. R. Martin Great? And it was actually my idea for the panel that I pitched. And I did it exactly because I feel like, um, you know, not just in a response to the people who endlessly troll George about where is T-Wow, but let's say just, you know, the good-spirited people who just maybe wonder why it is that it's, it's taking so long for George to write books. And I think there's a multitude of reasons, but it boils down to A Song of Ice and Fire is kind of almost unprecedented in the amount of plates that it's spinning, the amount of characters that it has, the amount of levels that it's working on at the same time, the amount of external ideas, mythologies, histories, and art literature that it's referencing and incorporating and reinterpreting and stuff like it's referencing Ragnarok and Marvel Comics and the War of the Roses and different religions and football and, you know, his own <laughs> ideas and Eldrick of Melnibony and Lord of the Rings. And it's just all cocktailed in there. And he's got his own mythology and symbolism. And when you get when you get done and exploring, we talked for 20 minutes about the unreliable narrator. I mean, there's just so much. So let's talk about what just happened right here. The reason why these psychedelic scenes work for George, two things jump out. One is that everything is brief. He doesn't give you long descriptions of glittering castles in the sky. He gives you these one-liners that are basically confusing, and he keeps jolting you with image after image so that your brain is spinning. And really what he's doing, and this is the second point, is he's simulating the emotional feel of a psychedelic trip or a shamanic vision or a spirit journey by, by jolting your consciousness with the writing style. And again, I think it, it's, you know, again, brief images, they're all shocking. There's almost so much color that you can't even process it, and it becomes this, you know, technicolor tapestry of images. And that's exactly kind of what tripping looks like. So he's, <laughs> he's managed to emotionally convey uh, the feel of a psychedelic trip with his use of language and phrasing. And he's consistently good at that. Uh, and his tendency to use simple prose uh, works to his benefit. Because if you were to try to use all the fancy words to describe the glittering castles in the sky in the heart of winter, it would instantly become cheesy and shitty and it would suck in the way that you're basically <laughs> alluding to. So I always tell people when we're talking about writing advice, use simple prose. You don't need to use big words. It just distracts the reader. Use basic words and then hang a bunch of symbolism and secondary meanings on them. So I'll stop talking, but that's that's what I got to say. Uh, I, I completely agree with what you said there specifically <laughs> about the, the psychedelic shamanic arc to the chapter. I think that's something that stands out really strongly in this, that it's, you know, starting out in this kind of like blank, dark space uh, with just the sensation of rushing and then gradually images start to kind of reform that like the the pause and then the eruption that uh, is is so common to religious experiences and psychedelic experiences, uh, the way that 
And like, I, I think you, you made a great point about how brief the images are. It really captures the psychedelic sensation of thinking something is amazing, trying to focus on it, and then your brain immediately takes you somewhere else because it, it's already done <laughs> and wants to get you to the next color, <laughs> the next idea, whatever it is. Um, and again, there's, that's, there's a, you know, you get to the word rapturousness and how that connects to religious ideas of the rapture. There is a religious feeling to that too. This, this overwhelming sense of oneness and this idea that you're connecting with how everything works. You know, that's how people would talk when they talk about religious experiences. That's, that's how they talk about it. Or when people, when people say, oh, I just needed to get away from it all. I had to go camping. I had to go out in nature and be with the trees. I had to go to the beach and just like be in the ocean. This is, they're also kind of talking about this, this sense of getting lost in a, in a, in something larger than you and kind of feeling the, the, the ebb and flow of it. Um, it, it doesn't feel like Martin's just describing a stained glass window to you, which is what a lot of fantasy magic imagery comes off to me as, is something, someone just very dryly describing to me what the characters are looking at. It doesn't make you feel it. And the sense of motion in this chapter, the sense of, of movement and this building dread is so palpable. Uh, and it, that's, that's really what, what makes this, like, like Elmo just said, it would be so, the potential for cheesiness is so strong, but he manages to get around it. So you are you guys familiar with the way uh, if you ever read about the way that the brain actually is filling in most of what you see and you actually only see what you directly look at and what you expect to see fills in kind of everything around the margins or uh, for example if when you're reading things it, you uh, if people drop a word out a lot of times you might not even notice because your brain is already expecting what the phrase is going to be, and so you might not even actually catch it. That's also why it's hard to catch your own typos because your brain yes. knows what it wants to yeah. say and it fills in. It doesn't. It doesn't process the mistake. So, what Martin is doing here is he's jolting your awareness because he's giving you sentences that don't make sense. He's describing things that don't make sense. And anytime your brain receives something that doesn't make sense, it has to stop and think about it. And the awareness changes. And this is why advertising always tries to disrupt you. It always tries to throw you something odd or bizarre or off the wall. Because if it's just normal stuff, your brain tunes it right out. But if they show you like a pink elephant walking up the side of a wall, you're like, what the fuck is that? And that moment of confusion (laughs) engages your brain. And now you're paying attention to the bloody advertisement. And Martin does that constantly by giving you sentences that don't quite make sense, describing things turning into other things, and now it's a mist, and now it's a crow, and now it's attacking him for some reason, but it's not really attacking him, and is that his third eye? I'm not sure. Oh, he's already awake, and now the crow's a woman. And, like, all these things are shifting and morphing in the mist, like visions, and that's, you have to use the poetic language in order to create that feel for this to work, so. Yeah, and the other thing, Interesting thing, too, is you brought up a great point, uh, LML, about how uh, George doesn't describe what the Heart of Winter looks like. And I think that's a really cool way that he does it because he it's in, it's indescribable in Bran's mind. But it also helps conceal some greater mysteries in the series about what is the Heart of Winter itself? Is it the home of the others? Is it some sort of location? Is it more um, allegorical or is it more an actual place. And I think that's a great um, writing uh, thing to do is that you, you want to conceal mysteries, but conceal mysteries in such a way that it doesn't feel like that you're just simply like uh, withholding on the one hand, but also doing it in such a way that you're, it, it captures the mind of, of Bran, who's what, eight years old in this chapter, seven years old. I, I can't remember Bran's exact age, but he's very young. And, he, and it's something that you wouldn't be able to necessarily describe as a seven or eight year old kid 
because it defies description. It, that kind of imagery and that kind of the way that the heart of winter just defies any type of description is just a great way that Martin sets our imagination and sets our imagination running too, because we think of all different types, or at least my mind goes to different types of things or what could the, what could the heart of winter actually look like? What could it actually mean? And that's an interesting way that Martin definitely writes this chapter. He manages to avoid the, like the JJ Abrams mystery box thing, you know, like where you get the sense that something is being withheld from you just for the hell of it, just to make you, make you buy the next book or watch the next movie. Like that's, you know, that's something, you know, the, the, the mystery, the twist has become such a cynical marketing strategy in so many ways in modern franchise media. And I think you, you see Martin avoiding this here um, because of, yeah, the speed at which he moves, the way he... It, the ma- I love how magic works as a disruption in this series. Like, there's always something normal going on and then suddenly things start to seem not right. Uh, and he captures that kind of, that, that weird disorientation so well in this chapter. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a really... It's a really effective way of letting you know the story is much wider than you thought it was necessarily going to be, which is always a risky moment in a story. So one of the, you know, people frequently talk about how Martin borrows from Lovecraft. Uh, But, you know, and they're usually thinking about, uh, you know, things like Blackstone and Squishers and Cthulhu and stuff and Starry Wisdom. But the more important thing that he borrows from Lovecraft something that Aziz talks about from History of Westeros a lot, which is the sort of mankind confronting something that's beyond his perception and basically being blown away by it uh, to the point where they just don't have words for it. They can't process it very much like Garrod in the prologue, so freaked out by the others that he's made it south and Ned can't even get a straight word out of him because he's just been rendered senseless by seeing the others, which is something his brain just couldn't process and it just like sort of (laughs) broke. And you look at Patchface... He's got his ear is so tuned in to some sort of frequency from the other world that his sanity is broken and he can barely interface with reality. So he's like really far out on that spectrum. And then you have people like Melisandre who are sort of half and half where they basically can function in the real world pretty well, except for their choices are shaped by the fact that they're trying to listen to, you know, the netherworld and the whisperings of, of R'hllor or whatever. And so when we talk about... Um, Bran. Bran is one of these characters who is obviously opening his third eye and beginning to hear the voice of God and hear the voices of, you know, basically beginning to see things in a different realm. And so he begins to lose a certain amount of ability to interface with the real world. Now, in the TV show, they sort of flip the switch on that, where it's like all of a sudden Bran is gone and he's super vague and doesn't care about anything. And he's like, yeah, see you later, me or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, but in in the books, it's it's developing much more gradually. But it's the same idea that they're wrestling with, which is this: it's the idea of shamanism, where you have to go sort of mad in order to hear the voice of God, and you end up trying to span both worlds with an ear in both worlds, and it's it pulls at your sanity. And Lovecraft wrote about that a lot, and I feel that Martin likes to write about that a lot. And we're going to talk about Odin and Bran and some of those ideas in a little bit later and it's just right it's going to pick up right there so let's go ahead I agree. with what you got here well I think and then on the flip side of a character like Bran or Melisandre you have someone like Aaron Greyjoy who isn't actually communing with the divine at all but is telling himself that he is because that's his way of processing and dealing with the horrible stuff that's happened to him in his life and I think it's it's that that really kind of sad link between the mundane and the metaphysical that works really well for, for Martin the metaphysical isn't necessarily an escape it's not easy to access. It's not, you know, you well, don't just go on. to school and learn it necessarily. I feel like a record just scratched, like, 
Euron Greyjoy is not hearing voices Aaron. from the Aaron. Aaron Greyjoy. Oh, Aaron. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> Their names okay. do sound similar. I probably botched the accent okay. there. No, yeah. Holy Euron's hearing. Was... Euron's got all of the real stuff. That's well, and that's the point that you know Euron confront in the Forsaken. Euron confronts Aaron with the knowledge that your god is fake. Your god is a humanized projection that I can kill in this vision. I've been going out into the world tapping into the real stuff, the real powers of the universe. Euron that- Greyjoy. Euron Greyjoy is fascinating because he's a guy who not only has his third eye wide open, just blasted wide open, he's got absolutely no fear whatsoever as he plunges into these worlds of astral projection and nightmare. And so <laughs> these he's projecting things into Euron's head that are crazy. Yep. But what the fuck is Euron seeing? You know, like... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> he's just just like Night's King before him. He's the man with no fear. Whereas Bran in this chapter uh, is is being driven by fear. Fear is kind of the central emotion in this chapter. Blood Raven is trying to get him past that fear and kind of embrace this new world. So you see those again the connections between the the mundane and the metaphysical. And I think what really coming back to this chapter, what really makes it work so well is that Martin's Martin's secret weapons are mundanity and simplicity. That you have, you know, as crazy as this dream gets, it combines the two most common of, of, of dreams, the ones that everyone has, flying and falling. You know, everyone everyone can relate to those two dreams. Everyone has versions of those two dreams at some point. The actual scenario is not obtuse or that abstract. It's those two things that we've all dreamed about. They, it operates on familiar dream logic. Bran has the, the thing he says to himself, quote, Even in dreams you could not fall forever. He would wake up in the instant before he hit the ground, he knew. You always woke up in the instant before you hit the ground. So that's Bran sticking to his stories and songs like he and Sansa both do. You know, kind of trusting that that logic that he's been working with in his young life so far will see him through this new situation. And it grounds us in it too, because we we know that dream rule about how if you're falling towards the ground, you typically wake up just before you hit. Uh, even though in, 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 you know, from everything from old shamanic stories right up to the Matrix, uh, there's this association with if you stay long enough to hit the ground, it'll kill you or it'll hurt you. Uh, it'll, that, that's when the threat becomes real and you, and you see that prop up in this chapter too uh, I love how this chapter even though it goes crazy with the imagery is not really introducing new elements with the exception of this is the first time we see Gregor in any in any capacity uh, but other than that it's hey, just uh, expanding yeah go ahead but I, I want to before you go on I like something you said just a minute ago and I want to I want to expand on it a little bit sure so, sure okay so one thing that you just touched on um, is Another technique that Martin is using to make this dream real and terrifying is he's going to one of these childhood sort of terrors, the idea of falling. I mean, this is primal stuff. This is like deep, deep in the id here that he's reaching in and trying to put his finger on and taking advantage of that terror. Like, this is going to be the dream where he doesn't wake up. And look, there are other impaled dreamers just like him, and they're impaled on spires of ice, which sounds even worse. And so like, there's many <laughs> things to make you think like this. He actually is in danger of falling and not waking up. And so like, this is, this is the kind of stuff that makes a chapter real. So young writers out there, you know, <laughs> think about, think about these things that you can tap into these devices that you can use that evoke deep emotion. I mean, this is doing all the work for you. This is doing the heavy lifting by tapping into these ideas. This is why Martin uses references to mythology. He's not just like referencing North mythology to score points with nerds. He's doing it because these images are powerful. 
They're yeah, old. Sure. They're thousands of years old. They evoke emotions. They're deep set. We don't even understand why we feel them until poor Quentin comes along and explains why we feel them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, he's, and he's drawn from the history and sci-fi and fantasy of you ground your crazy metaphysical world-building stuff in these familiar tropes. That's where the Campbell Heroes Journey stuff comes from. That's why George right. Lucas picked up on it as strongly as he did. And I think you can see Martin picking up on that thread here. Uh, just you know, grounding all this uh, heady stuff in what's going on with Bran and his his character arc. It's it's that it's that fall into knowledge. I mean, this is very much a continuation of what we saw happen in Bran too. There's there's the quote early on in this chapter. Uh, it seemed as though he'd been falling for years. Is how the chapter starts. Fly, a voice whispered in the darkness, but Bran did not know how to fly. All he could do was fall. Maester Lewin made a little boy of clay, baked him till he was hard and brittle, dressed him in Bran's clothes, and flung him off a roof. Bran remembered the way he shattered. But I never fall, he said, falling. And that was, you know, he went into that in Bran 2, brings it up again here, that image of Maester Lewin with the, the little man throwing him off the off the roof. Uh, that's It's that continuation of the of Bran's kind of maturation and that he's he's having to come into himself and face things he never saw before. Again, like it's a lot like Arya's teachers where Blood Raven is telling him to see and to know and to suppress your panicked instincts. Like, you know, when, uh, when Blood Raven makes him get rid of the face of Jamie and not focus on that for a moment, that's very much like how Sirio tells Arya, you know, look with your eyes, still as calm water, you know, focus on what you need to do in the moment. Uh, that's what Blood Raven is, is trying to, trying to bring out a, trying to bring out a brand and trying to get him to realize that, uh, he can take control of this negative situation. He doesn't just have to passively trust that he'll, he'll wake up before he hits the ground, that he can, that this is his self-actualization. There's that great line, every flight begins with a fall. So even though, even though this the situation began with him being thrown from the window, even though it's coming into his knowledge is very traumatic, that this is his this is his moment. This is the moment where he becomes who he is, and that's what really powers this chapter because it's not just Bran sitting in a chair looking vacantly at what's happening. He's not just a camera. This is very important for his story and his growth. And like like uh, Jeff said during the summary, that's what makes it so emotional when he makes the decision to fly. It doesn't just happen; he makes the decision, and that that's yeah. what really so, that's that's what hits. So, so Emmett, um, you know how in you uh, you went to college, right? <laughs> I did. This is true. Okay. <laughs> I, I did. I did not actually because I at the age of eighteen, instead of getting a bunch of student debt and, and going straight in, I wanted to move across the country to San Francisco and uh, play music and stuff, and it worked <laughs> out for me. I read a lot instead, but you definitely it just it shows that you've taken a good quality English literature class, probably more than one. Is that not the case? I took a couple. I went to Oberlin. Uh, I majored in going to Oberlin. That's what I did more 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 than I did attend class productively. I was at Oberlin. Uh, and so yeah, in, in class in classes like that, they often give you writing exercises, and they'll say yes. something like, uh, "Why everybody take a simple moment from the animal kingdom and use that as a basis to construct a fictional chapter." And let's say someone said, "Okay, take the moment that a bird, a mother bird." kicks a young bird out of the nest and forces it to learn how to fly. Now make that a chapter in a fantasy novel. That could end up with this chapter. Yes, Because that's essentially the moment that you were just describing where he has to decide whether to fly or fall and the emotion of it. And it basically is George just trying to go inside the mind of a baby bird, falling from the nest going, oh, I better fucking do something or I'm going to die. Here it is. Moment of truth. You know, fourth quarter, NBA finals. Take your shot. Win or lose. Here it is. It's moment of truth. 
Go right. Warriors! Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it, it just occurred to me while you were talking that this whole thing is like a little baby bird. And of course, Bra- Broken Bran uh, laying in the bed uh, appears to John as like a, a bird, you know, a bird's bones, uh, broken bones. and so. Yeah, that's a great point. And you have the three-eyed crow right there. So I think the, the mother bird analogy is, is perfectly appropriate. Uh, Jeff, we've been cutting you off, good sir. What are your thoughts? No. <laughs> You guys are basically saying all the all the good words, and I'm just here. I'm I'm basically the podcast listener right now. The, <laughs> the, I'm just enjoying the uh, the analysis. I'm letting it flow through me, kind of like a, kind of like what Blood Raven is doing with with Bran here, letting the knowledge kind of dropping the knowledge on him and letting the emotions oh, yeah. just kind of flow through. So I'm just I'm living vicariously through this discussion. It's terrific. I, I don't really have anything really to add. So you just keep it's plowing it. through, brother. It's extremely Force Ghost. It's extremely Mao Did. You know, again, you can see Martin drawing really heavily from popular fantasy and sci-fi uh, in, in in this moment for Bran. And um, yeah, I mean, and the, and there, there's there's the call. You know, that's that's the the great element of this chapter is that Blood Raven's not just showing him this stuff. He's 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 trying to frighten him in an attempt to recruit him. He's trying yes. to get him to take this stuff seriously so that Bran will join him. Um, and so my. Uh, favorite part of the whole chapter is is now you know the crow whispered as, as it sat in his shoulder now you know why you must live why Bran said not understanding falling falling because winter is coming like I remember reading that for the first time that's like that's clearly a moment where Martin wants you to go oh yes fascinating and just and really you know exactly this is when it's like oh I have to read this book and I have to read the whole next book like this is this is when you this is one of those moments when you become a, when you become a huge fan of the series if if we were on if we were on Twitter, I'd be furiously searching for mic drop gifts right now. <laughs> exactly, all <laughs> of all of them at once. That's why you have you have to live because winter is coming. It's bad, yeah. and you got to face it, broken boy. Wake up, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, this is this is your moment. This is what you have to do, and this is you have to fly so you can do this. And he accepts it. That's why at the end of the chapter, he calls his wolf Summer because he's he's accepted this role. He's going to be the the prince of light. He's going to try to bring the dawn. That's he he's. He wants to be part of that, and um, and so, that's uh, a, quick. That's a remarkable I know, thing. I'm going to throw Jeff a bone here, uh, since I know he's obviously like shared his Christianity here on a podcast today. Sure. Um, so when Brand wakes up, the warmth, uh, the warmth from summer enfolds him like a warm bath, which makes this essentially like a baptism that Brand yep. is undergoing as he comes back to life. Or is reborn in a sense. So it's a ravenous reader. A good friend of mine pointed that out to me. I can't claim to have noticed that, but the warm bath language definitely, to me, uh, evokes like a like a baptism. Yeah, I can definitely see where you would get that, and I would concur as well that it definitely is is baptismal in, in origin. Um, I, I think there's also something interesting too. Um, if we go dial back just a just a moment. Uh, whereas that Blood Raven's words to Bran are winter is coming because it, it's it's a double meaning, right? It calls Bran to both understand why he has to live to bring about the summer because the long night is coming again. Winter is coming. You know, as we're going to get in Bran's next chapter, we're going to get the story of the long night and the story of the others and the last hero and how the, the last hero brought uh, fire and brought flame into the world to defeat the others. But at the same time, it's kind of a wake-up call for Bran, too, because Bloodraven is intentionally using the stark words of winter is coming to be, kind of shake the boy and be like, dude, like, wake up. 
both metaphorically and physically <laughs> and also get <laughs> and and get get real with what's what's happening in 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 the situation that everyone is about to face like you are part of as Emmett put it you know you're the Arthurian uh, hero of the story you have to take the call you have to accept this difficult and incredibly tumultuous task ahead of you and we're going to find in brand chapters especially from the like clash of kings forward like these are brand's journey is one of the most difficult physically in the entire in all of the books and it's hampered even more so by the fact that he's um that he's paralyzed from the uh, from the waist down seemingly um in after this chapter which this chapter does hint at that brand is paralyzed so yeah, so, and then bring it back forward again to the baptism part. Yes, there is that warmth, that baptism, that rebirth, that bringing of Bran into this, this true meaning and purpose in this, uh, in this world and, and give, infusing Bran with a sense of uh, purpose and light that just uh, is, is awesome. It's, it's, a, it's a super well-written chapter. I mean, there's just so much that I just, I don't know, I, I have a hard time just thinking about ways to cr- critique this chapter. In fact, I, I have none. Uh, as we're talking, as we're talking and listening to you guys, it's just bringing it all to light. But yeah, I completely agree with what Jeff is saying about how Blood Raven uses Winter is Coming and how Martin uses it uh, through Blood Raven as a way of telling Bran that taking on this task and confronting these images is part of what it means to be a Stark. This is what House Stark is about. This is why you have the castle that you do. This is why you are in control of the North, because it's your job to deal with this. And, and if you, you know, so much of Bran's storyline is about the Stark identity, and he kind of carries it with him when he leaves Winterfell and goes back to it through the heart tree. And uh, him accepting that role goes hand in hand with him, you know, with him being brought along in his first chapter to see justice be done by Ned, because Ned wants him to understand the Stark way. Both Ned and Bloodraven are, kind, are showing Bran different facets of what it means to be a Stark. Ned was showing him the kind of physical, grounded model of justice that, that they are known for, and Blood Raven is showing him this is what it means to have magical blood in your veins. This is what it means to be descended from wargs and wizards and powerful people. Yes. This is that mantle. This is that great power that demands great responsibility. And uh, and they're linked together directly when just before Bran flies, he hears that quote from Bran 1 in his head. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? He heard his own voice saying, small and far away. And his father's voice replied to him, that is the only time a man can be brave. So he's, he's adopting these lessons he learned in, in the mundane world to help him operate on the astral plane. And that's what makes uh, Bran's kind of synthesis and union between those worlds uh, work so well. Uh, just, just like Danny, he momentarily forgets to be afraid. And then when the fear comes back, he has, he has to, to wrestle through it. So you see that those perfect hero's journey beats uh, just kind of dressed up in psychedelic clothes. And, and that's that's coming back to this chapter. That's Because the first time through this chapter, you're just being hit by the images. Coming back to it is really when you notice the arc stuff going on, I think. Okay, so you said that the job of the Starks is obviously to deal with the fact that winter is coming, right? Yes. I mean, it's an intrinsic truth that you can grasp pretty easily in the books. So check this out. One of the coolest pieces of external world mythology that I have stumbled upon is the King of Winter. The King of Winter is a thing outside of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it's basically a variation of The Wicker Man. And if you've Hmm. seen the movie The Wicker Man, you know what I'm talking about. It's the pagan tradition of building a giant wicker person and uh, burning him either sort of at the beginning of fall or more often in the spring. 
And there's even a rumor started by Julius Caesar that you could put people inside of a wicker basket and then burn it. <laughs> um, and Martin is referencing that all over the place. Uh, it's this Burning Man idea. And the reason why he's referencing it is because the King of Winter is a version of the Wicker Man that you make from the leftover garden shoots and corn stalks and things. You make like a two-foot-tall little man with these dead shoots and, and twigs and things. And you set him on the mantle and you keep him all through the winter so he turns brown. It's a little straw man. And then comes in the spring, you do your little occult you know, festival and you set him on fire. And that burning of the king of winter ushers in the spring. Uh, so the job of the king of winter is to usher in the spring. Yeah. Already. Yeah, like point. in world mythology. And then Martin has these Starks and calls them the king of winter. And so by punctuating this chapter with winter is coming, he's sort of speaking to that Stark identity that it's, it is definitely your job to deal with turning the seasons. Because the whole problem with the long night is that it's breaking the cycle of the seasons. We don't get spring after winter. We don't get day after night. And, you know, the dead don't sort of pass the torch to the next generation, but they come out of their graves and try to kill everyone. <laughs> so it's this, the long night is a corruption of all the nature cycles. And I, that's another one of the panels that I did at Con of Thrones. And the king of winter is, it's his job to make it turn. And, and the fact that uh, he burns in order to do this is not incidental either. Because John, of course, is going to be resurrected, possibly through fire. The, and uh, better yet, Bran... Okay, so you know that Bran, the word Bran means crow in Welsh, right? It means raven. Crow, crow yes, it means both. Yeah, crow or raven, yeah. Right. So, But the thing is that Brander, B-R-A-N-D-R, in uh, Norse languages, means is the same, is the root of brand, like firebrand or burning brand. Interesting. And brand... Brander uh, also can mean sword or flaming sword. And it's a concept that represents, like, basically uh, the fire of the gods. It's the burning brand that is from the gods. And so there's a whole... Martin uses the burning brand all over the place. The drowned god carried fire from the ocean with a burning brand. Uh, when John is in the uh, frost fangs and he's going to capture Ygritte, he looks up to their campfire and it looks like a red star. And then they tell him, we'll throw down the burning brand when you get up there. And then he gets up there and does a whole bunch of Moon Maiden stuff, and they throw down the burning brand like the red star falling to Earth. And that's like the fire of the gods falling to Earth, which is the whole thing that we're going to talk about next. So yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. Um, we've, got, we've got Bran implied as like this burning crow or this sort of crow raven that has the fire of the gods. And that is that's essentially like a soft, ver a soft wink and a nod at Bran as sort of an Azor High character. Totally. I think the the uh, the kind of Fisher King, Holy Grail, Nature God imagery is very strong in Bran's story, and you can see that influence heavily in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think about stuff like uh, you know, like twenties poetry, like the the Wasteland uh, and the Second Coming and stuff like that feels very much an influence on Bran's character. The sense of okay, what if what happens if those cycles break? What happens if like the cynical nature of modern war? Disrupt, disrupts these natural cycles and makes it impossible to plant the ground again. I think you see that over and over in A Feast for Crows, the sense that the war has, in a sense, poisoned the soil of Westeros and things can't grow here anymore, and we can't keep those cycles going. In The Wayward Bride, the Asha's like in a field of rotting wheat beneath the moon, and it's like all this harvest symbolism, But and she's got mm -hmm. the moon goddess stuff going on, but the instead of the wheat being harvested, it's being drowned and rotting. Right, or in the 
contrast that with Bran overseeing the Harvest Feast in A Clash of Kings and overhearing these conversations about you got to put enough harvest away to survive the winter. You know, these these things are happening in the context of Bran embracing his role as the kind of god and symbol of that whole process, that he is the one who will be buried beneath the castle and then kind of resume outward like the giant stone tree that Winterfell is. He, you know, it, it, it fits perfectly that the kind of more mundane stuff in Bran's story is about, in Clash of Kings specifically, is about uh, the harvest and about, you know, the, the getting by in the north, the practicalities of getting by in the north. Because the mythology of Bran is linked to a lot of those same questions, as you said, LML. Those, the, 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 the nature god that has to, has to bring about the spring through this manner of self-sacrifice, that the king of winter has to bring about spring by somehow destroying themselves, or, as in the case of the Azor High myth, uh, an opposite, uh, a loved one. You know, there's, there's lots, lots of death and rebirth imagery here. But yeah, Bran, Bran especially, you can see how central he is in this chapter to, well, to so those cycles. Ev- even more obvious is the fact that Bran is named after Bran, like Wheat Bran, which is a thing that's harvested. Yeah. And, the, and the crow is asking for seed from him the whole time, which obviously represents either his ability to have children or his life force you know, anything like that. So Bran, like a corn god, is basically being harvested in many ways right here. So that's why Bran's name is one of the best. It references the crow raven Bran. It represents the burning brand, burning sword Brander word, uh, which is further developed with like a whole episode of mythical astronomy garbage that I'm not going to start in on now. <laughs> and then the whole idea of Bran as a corn king, just like John is a corn king, with the name Bran as literally like Bran and you know they're asking for a seed and corn. I mean, it's it's great. It's all right there. That's some fascinating stuff. And uh, so, so one of the reasons that we had uh, LML on for this episode was uh, all of the symbolism that is inherent in this chapter, and that's one of the specialties that uh, makes him a strong and enduring force in the fandom that we all love to read and listen to. And uh, there's some really interesting symbolism about something that's known as the fire of the gods. Uh, LML, you want to take us through what that means and what that means for this chapter? Sure. The, the fire of the gods is simply a way of expressing the idea of mankind trying to become like God. So fire just means knowledge or power or magical knowledge or ability. So we're really we're, we're talking about what's called the Luciferian or Promethean theme of mythology. And we also see it in the Garden of Eden with Eve. Um, you know, Eve was first, not Adam. Sorry, Adam. Yeah. It's actually Eve who reaches for the fire <laughs> of the gods. Uh, and the, and it's okay, so let's start with the Garden of Eden, in fact. Uh, that, the fruit of that tree the, tree, the name of the tree is actually worth talking about. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the snake, when he talks to Eve, he says, eat of this fruit and it will make you like God, knowing good and evil. And so this implies that before eating the fruit, mankind was in this sort of blissful, animal-like state where we almost didn't even have the ability to sin. Uh, Although that's sort of a paradox because eating the fruit itself was a sin. Um, (laughs) But aside from that, we apparently didn't know good from evil. And when we ate the fruit, we became aware of our own evil, and so we became ashamed. We wanted to wear clothes. We couldn't run around like naked hippies anymore, yada, yada, (laughs) yada. But the tree itself was actually expanding our consciousness According to the biblical principle, it's making, it's taking man's consciousness and raising it to be closer to a god. And that is what the fire of the gods is all about. So, 
We mentioned Odin. Odin is very important to A Song of Ice and Fire and the concept of the fire of the gods. So the reason why Odin is so amazingly important is, well, first of all, it's like you sort of, I believe in following George's instructions when I analyze A Song of Ice and Fire. And when George shows you a one-eyed sorcerer pinioned to a tree, uh, you have to learn about Odin and Yggdrasil to understand the concept of what he's talking about. And the very condensed version of this is that Odin is a character who always thirsts and lusts for knowledge and magical power. That's really all he ever does. All his stories involve him, I mean, not all of them, but most of them involve him expanding his magical power. And what he always has to do is he has to sacrifice in order to do that. So one story is that he gives he gives one of his physical eyes, he actually plucks it out and tosses it down a well, and then that gives him the ability to drink from this well, which, of course, gives him magical knowledge. So he's basically giving up a one physical eye in order to open his third eye, his magical eye. And this is a metaphor for your consciousness. And it's the idea of taming your physical self or your flesh, if you will, as the Bible calls it, in order to elevate your consciousness and learn higher principles and higher concepts. You're, you're, you're sacrificing the physical for the spiritual, for spiritual gain. That's the sort of uh, the good version of it. Um, you know, Euron shows us the bad version of it, <laughs> where he's he's reaching for the fire of the gods recklessly. And again, I mentioned Lucifer and Prometheus and Adam and, and Eve, and these are all different on the range of like, you know, what we think of as a good guy or a bad guy. Prometheus is kind of neutral. He's trying to steal the fire from Olympus, but the people up on Olympus are kind of shitty. So you sympathize <laughs> with Prometheus and he's getting eaten by the eagle every day. So he's definitely a sympathetic character. You're kind of rooting for him. Lucifer, we're taught, you know, he's pretty much a bad guy. He's Everything's good in heaven until he disrupts and he challenges God, tries to pull the power play, loses, becomes a devil. Unambiguous bad guy at this point. Uh, but he's also somebody who's he's reaching for the fire of the gods in the sense that he's trying to take God's place. So, Euron, we talked about Euron as somebody who's reaching for the fire of the gods recklessly. But Bran is the most important character uh, who reaches for the fire of the gods. And Bran is basically learning everything from Bloodraven. So, Od- um, oh, okay, I skipped the second, the second Odin thing. So Odin gives up one eye to gain magical sight. The other thing that he does is he gets hung on Yggdrasil. And this is the thing that we actually see. Um, Odin is, he hangs on the branches of Yggdrasil, while Bloodraven essentially is hung from the roots of the Weirwood tree. But <laughs> it's more or less the same thing. Um, if you see some pictures of Odin on Yggdrasil, it's almost like he's pinioned to the tree. There's all these vines like wrapping around his body and like tying him to the tree. Sometimes he's hanging upside down from the tree. Um, but the point is that he's, he hangs on the tree and essentially his physical self dies. He becomes reborn after nine days. He spies the runes and gains the ability to sort of navigate the nine worlds. Because the whole point of Yggdrasil is that it's a world tree with access to the nine realms of the universe. And if you sort of master the tree, join with the tree, the tree is a highway that can let you go to any realm. And that's why George Martin describes the Weirwoods as spanning the river of time but not being moved by it. Okay, so he's telling you this is a cosmic world tree. It's eternal. It doesn't die. It's not moved by time. It can give you astral projection just as Yggdrasil does for Odin, the ability to cast his spirit all over the world. That's what Bloodraven is doing. So it's not just the fact that Bloodraven has one eye and he's on this magic tree. He's literally like 
transfixed. Um, because Od- oh, that's right. Odin isn't just hung on the tree. He's also speared like Christ to the tree. So it's, it's very much a crucifixion motif, uh, Jeff. Yeah. It's, it's just really, it's, it's regarded by most scholars as just a different version of a crucifixion, a crucified God sort of archetype. So Blood Raven is basically the Song of Ice and Fire version of Odin. He has indeed sacrificed his physical self. He's giving up his physical life in order to access the godhood of the Weirwood Net and, you know, gain the powers of astral projection and infinite snooping. So, um, go ahead. No, so I, I my, my one question is, how much of that do you think is Martin intentionally inserting Norse mythology, Christian um, theology, and other storytelling archetypes into the story intentionally, or how much of it is just kind of uh, the fact that Martin has grown up in this world of being influenced by Norse mythology, by Christianity, by story archetypes, being you know a lover of fiction from his early youth. Uh, you know, I, I guess it's a question of was it something that just kind of came naturally that he like had all these images and, and thoughts in his mind because he was is well read and well versed, or is it something that he he sat down and thought very intentionally and very specifically about what he wanted the story to be about? In your opinion, that is a great great question, and I'm so glad you asked it. Um, I feel very confidently more confidently than I do feel about moon meteors and long nights, <laughs> that, that all of this is not only intentional, but exquisitely intentional. And the way that I would put it is this. Um, when George R. R. Martin decides he wants to write about a flaming sword, he feels that he owes it to everyone, every great writer who's written about a flaming sword, to study what they've done so that he is not reinventing the wheel. He's very conscious of what everybody else has done. So Lightbringer is Suter's flaming sword. It's the flaming sword at the Garden of Eden. It is Excalibur. It is Thundar's sun sword from the old <laughs> Marvel comics. It is all of the above. Where and you know how it suits Martin. He picks and chooses from the different pieces or more often he finds the common elements of all these flaming swords and he uses those concepts in the story. And so basically they work like context. You can read A Song of Ice and Fire without knowing any external mythology and enjoy the books, and it makes sense. You don't need, quote-unquote, to know anything else in order to, quote-unquote, get the story. However, I would make the case that what Martin is essentially doing is taking advantage of all of this great work that's out there to make his images more powerful. And so when he summons a flaming sword into the story he's summoning the power of all these other flaming swords as an image just like we talked about the idea of falling in a dream he's picking these really powerful archetypes the crucified man is really powerful it's powerful Mm -hmm. in christianity and it's powerful in norse myth and it's powerful in egyptian myth and it's powerful in a lot of other myths and he's showing us crucified people all over the place not only with the boltons and daenerys crucifies people and uh Mance Raider is burned in a wicker slash weirwood basket, just like a, a wicker man and in a sort of Christ-like way. So there's this stuff is not only is it intentional, uh, but it's it's not just an Easter egg hunt. Like I said, for nerds, Martin <laughs> trying to show his nerd prowess. He is using these symbols because they're powerful. And it does. It's like doing a lot of the work for him. He doesn't have to do all this hard work to set it up because we as readers at least know subconsciously what these things are. But if we learn more consciously, then I think it only enhances this stuff and makes it more fabulous. Like what I'm about to do 
with Bran and this last bit of the chapter is going to make this chapter even better. This is already Emmett's one of his favorite chapters. He's going to like it more <laughs> after I'm done. So uh, it's and also as, as a way of answering your question about is Martin really you know are these conscious references? Check out the myth of the Grey King from the uh, the world of Ice and Fire. In the Age of Heroes, the legends say the Ironborn were ruled by a mighty monarch known simply as the Grey King. The Grey King ruled the sea itself and took a mermaid to wife, so his sons and daughters might live above the waters or beneath them as they chose. His hair and beard and eyes were as grey as a winter sea, and from these he took his name. The crown he wore was made of driftwood, so all who knelt him before him might know that his kingship came from the sea and the drowned god who dwells beneath it. The deeds attributed to the Grey King by the priests and singers of the Iron Islands are many and marvelous. It was the Grey King who brought fire to the earth by taunting the storm god until he lashed down with a thunderbolt, setting a tree ablaze. The Grey King also taught men to weave nets and sails and carved the first longship from the hard pale wood of Ig, a demon tree who fed on human flesh. (laughs) So... This is a very Luciferian character. I mean, he's literally stealing the fire of the gods, the storm god, and it's coming down like a thunderbolt. Uh, The burning tree, Jeff, I'm sure you recognize as a burning bush, Mm -hmm. such as in Moses' story. It's a well-known symbol for the voice of God or the manifestation of God on earth. And the weirwoods are the burning bush, and Martin gives this away in two different ways. So... The weirwoods are described as a blaze of flame amongst the green when Theon looks at the red leaves, sort of like a splash of red amongst the green canopy. Uh, because we're more often familiar with the weirwood leaves being described as bloody red hands, right? Yes. Yes. From but when he dis- Right. Well, many times, actually. Uh, but mm-hmm. noticeably, yeah, a thousand bloodstained hands uh, in Catelyn's chapter. So the, um, when Theon describes the red of the weirwood as a blaze of flame amongst the green we're just reminded that blood and fire are basically synonymous and interchangeable in the story. Anyways, blood, the comet is described as blood red and fire red, you know, interchangeably, blood and fire, the Targaryens, yada, yada, yada. So <laughs> you can look at the red hands of the weirwood as burning hands or even burning hair, if you put it like sort of on top of the weirwood face. Uh, but more importantly and more obviously, the weirwoods are the transmission of the fire of the gods to people that we see in the story. The, the people that are becoming like gods the most are the people are the green seers who join with the godhead of the weirwoods and the old gods. And so we can confirm that it's not just this throwaway line about the, the red looking like fire. The weirwood tree is a symbol of the fire of the gods. So when we see this great king myth talking about the fire of the gods being called down to earth and it takes the form of a burning tree, we can know that this is really important. But The giveaway that this is relevant to Bran comes in this funny little story called The Bad Little Boy Who Got Struck by Lightning, which (laughs) Bran thinks about as he's climbing the tower to fall down to the ground. So the story goes like this. It's one paragraph. Old Nan told him a story about a bad little boy who climbed too high and was struck down by lightning and how afterward the crows came to peck out his eyes. Bran was not impressed. There were crow's nests atop the broken tower where no one ever went but him, and sometimes he filled his pockets with corn before he climbed up there, and the crows ate it right out of his hand. None of them had ever shown the slightest bit of interest in pecking out his eyes. It's given the Luciferian language. He climbed too high, just like a morning star, challenging God, and he was struck down by lightning, and afterwards the crow came to peck out his eyes. The thing is, so Bran, the little boy who got struck by lightning... 
is kind of like the tree, which got struck by lightning. But the thing about possessing the fire of the gods is you have to become part of the tree. So yeah. Bran is essentially like a tree struck by lightning. And as far as having his eyes pecked out, well, the real crows don't do it, but of course the dream crows do. I'm flying, he cried in delight. I've noticed, said the three-eyed crow. <laughs> it took to the air, flapping its wings in its face, slowing him, blinding him. He faltered in the air as its pinions beat against his cheeks. Its beak stabbed at him fiercely, and Bran felt a sudden blinding pain in the middle of his forehead between his eyes. So he's getting blinded by the crows. He climbed too high, and he's fallen to the ground, just like the bad little boy that he's thinking about in his story. And the lightning element comes with the idea of him possessing the fire of the gods, which is what he starts doing in his coma dream, and more specifically, when he wakes up. Last piece of this. Uh, leading up to this, uh, actually, no, this is in A Clash of Kings now. It says, That night Bran prayed to his father's gods for dreamless sleep. If, God, if the gods heard, they mocked his hopes, for the nightmare they sent him was worse than any wolf dream. Fly or die, cried the... Fly or die, cried the three-eyed crow <laughs> as it pecked at him. He wept and pleaded, but the crow had no pity. It pulled out his left eye and then his right, and when he was blind in the dark, it pecked at his brow, driving its terrible sharp beak deep into his skull. He screamed until he was certain his lungs must burst. The pain was an axe splitting his head apart, but when the crow wrenched out its beak all slimy with bits of bone and brain, Bran could see again. So he's now he's flipped the whole pecking out his eyes thing and showing you this is actually opening his third eye. This process of losing his eyes, just like Odin did, is really the process of him waking up and gaining his true vision again. So hmm. I'll stop and let you comment there. Question, how do the Infinity Stones fit into this? <laughs> no, but I... I know. I love. I, I have a serious point to make. No, I love. I love all of that. And I was thinking while you were outlining that so perfectly. Okay, so how do you? How does one fit this dense mythology into best-selling novels? How does one fit this kind of intense historically influenced imagery into something that people read casually? Because, like you say, a lot of people read it without ever picking up on any of this stuff and have a perfectly cogent, enjoyable, coherent read. And part of me thinks the predecessor to that is comic books. Comic books specifically like characters like Thor, that you have incorporating ancient characters, ancient symbols, really weird ideas into pop culture, right. into stuff that yeah, kids it, read, into stuff that teenagers it, enjoy. It does the heavy lifting for him because he's using familiar yes. symbols. And like you say, he doesn't overwrite them. He trusts the symbols to speak for themselves. He trusts the, the kind of the primal nature of the scenario to speak for itself. And you can argue, as we will, over the specific meaning of each one, but... The, the, the meaningness, I guess you'd call it, the, the kind of the intense vibrating resonance of the images, the sense that they are important, that they are central, that's something I think you're absolutely right that Martin uses these ideas to tap into. So even if you're not interpreting them directly, you feel how important they are. I mean, I remember there's this book called uh, Summerland. This is a fantasy novel about this, this kid who really likes baseball and ends up leading him into this mythical world that's like half fantasy, half baseball stuff. It's corny and cheesy in a lot of ways, but it has it has the world tree image, the, the this giant tree that they say holds up all these different realms, and this very Odin-like character, kind of this one-eyed tree-ish character who emerges at the end to like you know intervene, and he has this fiery hand, and it's 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 it's. I remember reading it as a kid, and it stuck with me even though I didn't really know why. And, you know, the, the older you get and the more you learn about how pop culture kind of 
trickles down and transmit these images, the more it makes sense that, yeah, that there is there is some collective unconsciousness stuff going on here. That there's some classic images I've been exposed to in different ways without even realizing it, and that resonates to the surface when I read something like A Song of Ice and Fire, where the author is really digging into it. So I think that's the miracle is not even just that he has a mythology this dense but that he has a mythology this dense in something that's not a textbook or something that only has interest to uh, myth- mythological nerds, but is something that is, is broadly enjoyed and accepted. That's a miracle in and of itself. Well, it's a great point you raise, and it's another thing that makes George R. R. Martin great that I would love to pass on as a writing tip to everyone that's out there. And the way that he makes this work is simple. He writes the mythologies really quick. That whole Grey King thing was two paragraphs. Yep. And, but because he's referencing things like a burning tree and the fire of the gods and a thunderbolt, you can hang all this other concept and mythology and idea into just one little paragraph. And he also always, always, always uses his world building to enhance the characters uh, and the hearts in conflict. Like one of my favorite examples, the story of Durin, God's Grief and Storm's End is classic fable. It's very fantastical. It doesn't make much sense in a literal sense, except for that it's some sort of flood myth, obviously. Apart from that, it's very much fantasy. But the thing is, this character during God's grief, his defining attribute is that he's stubborn. He challenges the gods. He doesn't care how many castles burned down, fell over, and sank into the swamp. He built a fourth (laughs) castle, and a fifth (laughs) castle, and a sixth castle. It doesn't matter. He declared war on the gods. The stubborn guy, but when does we when do we get this myth? We get it in the store in the chapter where Catelyn is going to try to force a peace between Stannis and Renly, two stubborn Baratheons who are declaring war on each other and will not relent. So the myth and the world building isn't. I mean, she thinks about it because she's going to Storm's End, and so she thinks, oh yeah, Storm's End, that place where you know yada 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 <laughs> wacky myth that is condensed in three paragraphs but it's actually building the character of the Baratheons as well as doing the world building. So he never just jerks himself off telling fables and world building stuff. He's always using it to build the character's hearts and conflicts. And that's why uh, the idea that he stresses the hearts and conflicts in the characters so much is not at all at odds with the idea that he's also doing extensive mythology and very nerdy world building and stuff. He's just trying to tell us as writers Make sure you do everything through the filter of your characters and keep them in the center. And then you can get away with doing the nerdy world building and sell a story that HBO likes and that regular people can read, even if they don't pick up on all your nerdy joygasms. (laughs) I agree. Once he's got you, once he has you with the characters, once he has your emotional core, there's nothing a skilled author can't get away with at that point. Once once, once he grounds you, like, like we say, you can... You cannot care about any of the imagery in this chapter and still focus on it as being about Bran overcoming his fears because that's the spine of it. That's the arc. That's what's going on with the character. And once once you got us there, an audience really will follow you into crazy places. Once you once you build a solid hero's journey, there there is really I think there's there's no length even a pop audience won't follow you on if you have them in that way. Uh, so one of the, the other thing that your last comment jogged free in my brain was uh, the quote that Martin gives about working with uh, his thoughts on Lord of the Rings, um, which are complex. He's a big fan, but he also wants to sort of critique it and show where he would do things different. Or let's I, I actually think what he's really just doing is saying that fantasy needs to evolve. And what Tolkien did was great, but it's, you know, 50 years later, let's 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 keep it moving or whatever. So yeah. he talks about having a conversation with Tolkien. 
And I think it's the exact same with everybody that he quotes. Every literature that, that he references, he's having a dialogue and a conversation. So when he uses these symbols, he's either capitalizing on the mojo they already have, or he's inverting them or cutting against them in a way that creates a conversation. Like Because we have an expectation of a symbol, like a flaming sword being heroic, he's like, well, yeah, but you know how we got it? The dude had to stab his wife. Yeah. And it cracked the moon. So now we don't know how to feel about a glorious flaming sword anymore. It's a little ambiguous. I'm not sure, you know. So there's, it's, it's, he either works with them or uses it as something to pull against. And so learning all this stuff, it, yeah, it's extra and superfluous, kind of. But it's a lot of fun, and it makes the books a lot more richer. Uh, because when Bran is climbing this tower, like the bad little boy who climbed too high... What is he climbing to do? He actually is climbing to overhear forbidden knowledge, isn't he? Because it's <laughs> yep. this knowledge that Jamie and Cersei are having an affair that's dangerous. And trying to possess that knowledge puts Bran's life in danger. And when he dreams about this event later, he looks up and he sees Jamie's face sticking out the window, like basically like the sun, gleaming like the sun, almost like a sun god. So you get this idea of Bran climbing this tower towards these gods, these godly twins, and trying to, he's snooping in and getting this hidden knowledge that he's not supposed to have and getting booted out of heaven for it, and now he's broken. However, he did steal that fire because he's on the way to being a green seer now, and he's opened his third eye, and it's burning, and he's going to start merging with the godhead. Beautifully said, sir. That sounds like a good moment to move on to likes and dislikes. I don't think we're going <laughs> to sum it up any better than that. What do you think, Jeff? Do you have anything more uh, you want to jump in with first? Well, I'm, I'm spellbound, first off. Uh, I think that should be <laughs> obvious by my, my silence is mostly me learning because I, I, because I mostly feel like the, uh, the, 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 the reader who enjoys the story, um, who enjoys this, this chapter specifically because of the, um, uh, the emotional punch that it pulls. Like my, my like for this chapter is very much, centered around how short this chapter is like i remember this chapter going back and thinking that it was going to be this super long chapter and the next chapter is very long the next catlin chapter but this brand chapter according to my kindle is only eight pages long but it's so rich in emotion and it's so rich in this symbolism that lml just brings to life that really just kind of thrills me because it's not something that i necessarily focus on i mean my uh my, my interest in the series are are is not necessarily towards the um, towards the mythological basis of it and towards what George is hinting at, but it really strikes a chord in me that you know you could pull all the stuff out from this chapter that again is only again eight pages in my Kindle, but it's the imagery is amazing and wonderful, and all of the background that George is imbuing into the narrative is just phenomenal and i really have nothing to dislike about this chapter it's it's intensely good and you know listening to you lml just makes it that much better in my mind amen brother right on well the whole my whole podcast is basically a process of me finding these things getting really excited about it and then just trying to transfer that enthusiasm to everyone else because <laughs> once once i've sort of gotten all excited about something i just feel like well everyone that 
likes a song of ice and fire has to know about this. I can't even bear the thought that people are getting impatient for the winds of winter when they actually, there's so much more enjoyment to be wrung out of the five books that they've read, even if they've read them fucking five or 10 times, (laughs) if they haven't tuned in to this mythical symbolism layer, then there's like this whole extra present waiting for you in all the books You go back and get to read them again. And they're all new, you know, a second time. I, I could send you a little 20 minute symbolism shot on like literally every chapter that you do. Wow. Beautifully said. So that, that spirit of generosity and excitement to share uh, and exploration is something I really love in the fandom and specifically love in your stuff. So yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Um, I agree with Jeff that there's really nothing to dislike here. This chapter is pretty much flawless. It's <laughs> one of the most iconic and important chapters in the whole damn series. Again, this is one of those where I think if Martin had, uh, had messed this up, we wouldn't be talking about these books still. You know, this is, this, this is one of the foundation stones that he had to get right. For this series to work, and he did. Uh, something I like that I haven't really mentioned, um, in kind of the opposite direction, something that really grounds the chapter, is that the three-eyed crow is not a stiff, stoic mentor figure. He's not like, Bran Stark, you have come to, I must teach you all the ways of the important... Th-. Like, he's not... It's not grave. He's snarky, he's playful, he's sarcastic. Uh, like, say, got any corn is, of course, the great example. In this middle of this tense, weird situation, this very banal thing... Um, or I love that, as the, the line LML already pointed out, when Bran says he's flying and you're with him, it's so emotional and transcendent, and Bloodraven just says, I've noticed. It's just like this sarcastic, like, yeah, you're flying, kid. How many kids do you think I've seen fly over the years? He's like stereotypically French with a cigarette full of ennui. That's how I picture him. Yeah, I've noticed. I've noticed. Stubs out cigarette. That's- that moment is actually something that comes from the Grateful Dead following Circus. What that is, that is the moment when you run into one of those OG trippers and you're excited <laughs> about this new breakthrough experience. You're like, dude, and then I realized the whole universe is one and I'm just a part of it. And he's like, yeah, dude, right. That's cool, man. That's cool. Yeah. I fucking no, realized that 40 years ago, bro. <laughs> yeah, the drug culture comparisons are, are perfectly appropriate. Blood Raven to Brand does feel more like, yeah, just Blood Raven passed Brand his first joint, and like Brand coughed a lot and is now talking about like going to summer camp, and Blood Raven's just sitting yeah. there going, yeah, mm hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but, and I love, but I love that. It makes it not pretentious that Blood Raven is talking in this very kind of oddly relatable, uh, humorous way. Um, and it, it's a nice hint that the Three Eyed Crow is, in fact, a human being, the fact that he's talking this way to Bran. Uh, is that he's not purely a mystical entity, but that at his core he was a mortal once like Bran because he's still talking this way. Uh, even you know if what Martin... Else? Yeah, go ahead. You know what else the, th- you know what else the Three-Eyed Crow is? Mm. Nobody else besides Bloodraven ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. That's a theory, isn't it? Oh, God. There's, ma- there's many theories about the Three-Eyed Crow being something other than Bloodraven. All of them upset me deeply. <laughs> yeah, that's just... <laughs> There's, it's like the law of conservation of narrative detail here, guys. Like, there's no reason for Martin to have these two characters in the exact None. same role. No, that would not. that would it would be like if Jojen died in Storm of Swords and another mystical boy turned up to help Bran. It would be like, why? That's not. Yeah, that's, that's no, it, no, that's just. And it, it always hinges on Crow and Raven are different, even though Bran means the same. And also, it's just guys, you're just no. No, that's, well, that's, Blood, over, that's Blood Blood overthinking Raven, like, it in the wrong way. Yeah, it's based on that and Blood Raven going crow. Oh yeah, I used to be a crow. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and and people are like, oh well, if he was the three eyed crow, then he would. You know, why would he be confused about that? That's like the Jane Westerling's hips of of like the North. Yeah, yeah. exactly. 
And also, like, what I always think about these things, guys, like, imagine how the revelation would work. Like, some other entity is going to turn up and Brands wins Winter Trap and goes, Aha! I was the three-eyed crow all along. Like, that's stupid, guys. That's yeah. stupid. Think about it how the reveal me. would work. It was me, your future self. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, that's... That's the giveaway with those. Well, it wouldn't. I just, you know, I listen to your guys' podcast. I know that it wouldn't be a not a cast without spending some time dissing bad theories. So I'm just serving it up some softballs for y'all here. Yeah, that's, that's excellent great. point, we appreciate sir. That. <laughs> we have we have to tell the ugly people that they are ugly. This is true. It's part of our brand. I do um, have a, exactly. So so I programming. You know, I do have a good transition into foreshadowing. If you want to go into that, but sure. I, I, LMO, I don't know if you want to talk about your likes and dislikes more generally before we we hit that up or. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I think we, I just been talking about what I like about it the whole time. And <laughs> true, as far as true. dislikes, there's, there's nothing to dislike. I mean, I just want to highlight again it's that perfect. it's nine pages and this is why you should use symbols and external stuff because you could just lets you do a lot of work in a small space. And I always, I mean, Martin's chapters are like a fight in a phone booth, you know, like a knife fight in a phone booth. I mean, they are intimate, they are personal. They are quick. They are in close quarters. There is no room for bullshit. No. They move fast. And I think it's really, that's why he tells everyone, write short stories first. He's like abusive with that advice. Like telling, write short stories. Because it trains you to make things happen quick. And if you read his older stuff, which is short stories, it's, it's, it's just a master class on efficient world building. He does it while a character's walking down the street. He does it like, for example, Ned's chapter in the rain when he battles Jamie Lannister. It's a great chapter, right? The chapter yep. starts out where he's in the brothel talking to uh, the the 15-year-old you know, prostitute, Barra's mother Barra. that Robert, yeah. Robert... The chapter actually doesn't start in the brothel. The chapter starts with Ned only two minutes away from the fight with Jamie Lannister walking in the rain. But he spends a bunch of time thinking back to everything that happened while he's walking so that Martin can just juxtapose past events present events and recollections of Lyanna all in one stream of consciousness mix up all the symbols and then comes the fight with Jamie Lannister and from there it's straight into the Tower of Joy dream the next time we see Ned and all of that stuff is telling a symbolic story and it's really just Ned walking in the rain and then losing a quick fight and being knocked unconscious that's all that actually happens yeah yeah I agree. yes sir I agree so no I won't say anything bad about George R. R. Martin in this chapter <laughs> <laughs> I mean we we, I, I, I try to rack my mind to try, try to find things that I dislike about this chapter. And I just, just couldn't, just couldn't. No, it's it's pretty much perfect. Yep. Yeah. Um, to, to kind of get back into uh, something you guys were talking about, about the uh, the identity of the Three-Eyed Crow, um, as Bloodraven, there is something, in it, and I don't want to defend the bad theories, because the bad theories are bad, and they're <laughs> thought of by ugly, evil, stupid people who just need to stop thinking of these bad theories. But... There may be a little nuance in it in that uh, the Three-Eyed Crow was not originally Bloodraven, the character Bloodraven, that is Brendan Rivers. Uh, if we go a bit deep in the weeds in George's writing process, we know from uh, something that Elio Garcia Jr. and Linda Antonson, who are uh, George's co-writers from The World of Ice and Fire, in a, um, I believe it was a uh, after-episode review of season four where Blood Raven is revealed, or the Three-Eyed Raven in the show is revealed. Um, were there, they said, um, or Elio says, 
Quote, I recall asking George when I interviewed him, did he always know that the Three-Eyed Crow was Bloodraven? His answer was that he always knew that the Three-Eyed Crow would be tied to the Targaryens. He didn't always have the, have the specifics of how. And so when I look at that, I think that maybe George didn't come up with the character Bloodraven until he came up with came onto the idea of the Blackfire Rebellions, which is something that likely occurred around the time when he was either finished or finishing A Clash of Kings, because then we start getting a lot of Blackfire references in A Storm of Swords. And that makes sense. Well, but, that, uh, let me just real quickly stop you, Jeff, to tell you yeah. that your boy, Jim, something like a lawyer and Aziz, knocked it out on the Blackfire Rebellion panel at Con of Thrones. It was great. I, I hope they get some audio of that, because I would definitely love to hear that, because that, that History of Westeros, Blackfire Rebellions... Uh, series of podcasts was fantastic and I love the shit out of those and I can't wait to, for their Blood Raven episode which I think is coming out soonish if I'm not mistaken yes, yeah indeed. and I think uh, I think uh, Samantha from uh, I think is it Watchers on the Wall uh, was on that one too and oh god I wish I could remember everybody's name on the panel I just wanted to give your your boy uh, Jim a shout out because yeah. I know you guys are you, know, you guys are boys and stuff so I said hi to him yeah awesome yeah, that's uh, that's cool. And, and Jim was a great part of the uh, the Redgrass Fields uh, podcast they did with History of Westeros, which I encourage everyone to listen to because it's great and fantastic. And if you love battles and wars, and well, I guess no one really loves battles or wars, but if you get excited by battles and wars, then that's definitely a podcast episode to take take advantage of listening to and re-listening to if you've already heard it. Okay, okay. Uh, let me. I'm sorry. I'm feeling really terrible that I don't have everybody's name. I have it now. So it was Jim McGeehan, Ian Thomas Malone, Samantha Wallace, okay, and Disease. Yes. So. They were all great, and I wanted to give some respect there. I just I have a bad memory with people I just met, so you know, okay, please man. nobody take offense. But it was a great panel, and uh, very much enjoyed that whole Blackfire stuff. So, oh, to what you were saying, Jeff, the point you made, the that statement to me tells me so much. He didn't know which Targaryen it was going to be, but he knew it was going to be a dragon green seer. That is the thing to pick up on. He always knew that this green seer was a dragon blooded person, and that tells me that this is a very important idea. Somebody who has the blood of the dragon and has become a green seer. Hmm. And to me, that's that's who Azor High is. And there's no accident that Barak, a man with a flaming sword, has so much in common with Blood Raven. Yeah. And there's no accident that John is has the skin changer genetics of House Stark, which can be green seer genetics sometimes, as well as the blood of the dragon. There's a reason why Martin is sending all these dragons north of the wall. There is a really important crossover between the blood of the dragon and the weirwood magic, and I believe it goes back to Azor High. So I'll just leave it there and say that if that's something that tickles your fancy, check out Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast at LucifermeansLightbringer.com. Plug, plug, plug. Because <laughs> that is my shit. Well, it gets up to the ideas you were touching on earlier about how so much Norse imagery revolves around uh, fire. And the burning brand, and the you know this uh, taking out your eyes, or you know burning parts of yourself, and that gets at the idea of having a Targaryen north of the wall. That Martin is trying to synthesize the fire imagery and the kind of more northern Norse imagery of his stories into one coherent image, and is using a character like Blood Raven or Maester Aemon or John in order to do that. There's also specifically a dragon serpent that lives amongst the roots of Yggdrasil that gnaws at the roots and gets set loose at the end times. And so putting uh, Blood Raven as a dragon in the roots is basically uh, Martin combining Odin being hung on the tree with the dragon in the roots and then giving us a dragon hung on the roots of the tree. So it's, that's how Martin sort of has fun sort of rearranging 
you know, the myths to suit his purpose because he's he never hesitates to do that. He changes and flips and he's never beholden to it. He's always trying to write a good story first, you know. True. Yeah. Absolutely. So alongside some of the similar uh, foreshadowing lines, we also get some Catelyn Roderick death or perhaps danger foreshadowing where Bran is looking out and he sees his mother sitting alone in a cabin um, with a uh, bloodstained knife that he's hold that that Catelyn is holding. And this says a storm was gathering ahead of them, a vast, dark roaring lashed by lightning, but somehow they could not see it. And as we find out in the next Catelyn chapter, the uh, they're all sailing into danger there. They're sailing right into the conspiracies of Littlefinger and Varys. And uh, I, I do wonder, Storm has a uh, component of being a uh, danger, so it could just be a danger foreshadowing, but it also could be Catelyn Roderick death foreshadowing too, and they're sailing into the storm, they're sailing into the unknown, they're sailing into death. Their eventual deaths down the road and for Roderick in A Clash of Kings and for Catelyn at the Red Wedding and in Storm of Swords. Yeah, it can also refer to the war more generally, I think, the, the building conflict in King's Landing and in the Riverlands. Uh, Martin consistently associates Storm with war. I mean, the title A Storm of Swords is the most uh, obvious example, but you also have the Storm Crows, you know, sell swords that kind of get get rich and uh, excited off of war. Or Euron, of course, declaring himself that he is the Storm. Uh, and he's taking advantage of the war in so many ways. So yeah, I, I agree. That's uh, foreshadowing a bunch of different things: the the political tumult of King's Landing, the war that comes out of it, and yes, and uh, Catelyn and Roderick, of course, are both going to die as part of that conflict. So it it bodes ill for them as well, personally speaking. Yes, it does. And then uh, we have a nice little bit of foreshadowing with Maester Lewin. Uh, when Bran sees, he says, quote, he saw Maester Lewin on his balcony, studying the sky through a polished bronze tube in front of him as he made notes in a book, which I just love as an uh, image of Maester Lewin, the secular character, popping <laughs> up in Bran's vision, uh, because so much of Bran's story in A Clash of Kings is going to be this fight between Maester Lewin and Bloodraven for Bran's soul. Like, you know, Bloodraven sends Jojen to try to help open Bran's third eye, but then you have Maester Lewin always discouraging him and saying, no, those the magic's not real. Um... So it's interesting to have Lewin show up in this, in this vision. And also, of course, the fact that he's studying the sky and making notes uh, could be foreshadowing of the Red Comet, which is what everyone's going to be looking to the sky to see as we get to the end of this book and the start of the next one. Yeah, I love that. The, uh, and it's actually the first time the comet appears is after Ned's death uh, in, that cha- in that scene in Lewin's ter- turret. It happens like one chapter before Danny hatches the dragons, which is the scene that most people associate with being the first Red Comet scene. It actually is cited first by, uh, I guess, Maester Lewin. So it's pretty cool that you picked up on this foreshadowing because it's like, well, it was even sort of foreshadowed, cited before then. Uh, yeah, it's cool. And and it's sort of to what you were alluding to. It, it symbolizes, um, you know, the Maesters as the people who are trying to understand nature through a more rational scientific understanding Versus Bran, who's obviously using the other route at this moment. <laughs> and we'll see that same dynamic recreated on Dragonstone at the beginning of the Clash of Kings when we really get into the Red Comet, because, of course, our POV there is Crescent, a maester of the Citadel, who has this whole monologue in his head about, I spent my whole life on this project of rationality, and all my hard-won wisdom has fled me now as I'm staring up at this littlest eye wreathed in flame, and it's you know throwing everything into doubt. It's that same again the fall into knowledge and that that awareness of the magical structure around you uh, comes up again and again. Um, so I think it's that's, kind of that's something lo- to watch. Yeah, 
it's another Lovecraftian moment where he's sure. looking at the comet and even though he's the most sober, doesn't believe in magic, and it's like it's making him doubt. He's like, you could almost believe. Yeah. It's the same as when Tyrion stands atop the wall and looks yes. at the haunted forest, and he's like, you could almost believe those stories about the others. And suddenly his jokes weren't funny, you know? Yeah. Very briefly, there's another cool bit of foreshadowing. Uh, we're talking about birds and crows and all those types of things. Of uh, The three-eyed crow as Mormont's bird that kind of say got any corn line that uh, that Blood Raven sells, tells Bran. It, it does kind of get back to that scene from A Storm of Swords where Mormont's uh, crow, or Mormont's raven rather, becomes the uh, the pivotal moment that brings John into his lord commandership where it says, cattle, 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 you know, and uh, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing that way. Well, even better is when he says, corn king John, I'm sorry, corn king, corn, <laughs> corn king John Snow. Because <laughs> you're familiar with corn king, right? Yeah, yeah, I read mm-hmm. say, yeah. Right, so it's a simple nature god myth, you know, he, he dies to, like, Arthur Green in the autumn and resurrects, you know, in the spring. So it's very similar to the King of Winter, where his role is to die and transform as a personification of the turning of the seasons. So identifying John as a corn king and having the crow asking him for corn, it's the very same thing as the three-eyed crow asking Bran for corn, where it's just signifying that he's going to have to sacrifice himself. And, you know, the crow is going to take from him, but also give to him, too. Give back something yeah. different. And that ties directly into, of course, Martin's overall themes of like disillusionment and loss of innocence, the Knights of Summer, and how kind of... When you think of the Knights of Summer, you think of fields ripe with wheat and, and corn aplenty. And like oh, that, is that speech Robert has where he describes all the fruits you can still see in the South, Ned. You gotta taste summer before it flees. You know, those... It's, it's, that's how you see the link between the kind of the magical stuff and the character stuff is that... Just as the world is going through this fall, the characters are going through this fall, too. Dude, you are great. I read both of those quotes in my Nature Cycle Mythology panel this weekend. Both the Robert Summer King speech, standing in the crypts among the kings of winter, like the strongest contrast you could possibly have. Ned yes, with yes. the frozen fate, frozen face and choked frozen laughter. And, and Robert with the, look at the girls! It's like they were barely wearing any clothes on their tits and blah, 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 blah. It's like, And then, yeah, the, the Knights of Summer, where they're juggling daggers, and they're making bastards, and they're joking and laughing and singing, and it's all a game. And then their, their horned god, Renly, gets sacrificed. The tents blow out. Everything is turned cold. And now it's the winter has come, just like Catelyn says it will for the Knights of Summer. And now they're disillusioned, and they got to go serve either the demon god Stannis or become rebels and find a new path. But there's no juggling going on the day after Renly's killed, and there's no bastard making. You know, it's all panic. Winter is is come. You know, in that moment. Yeah, and another character who, of course, embodies that fall from grace in the sense of war. Uh, wrecking these cycles is Euron. And we've talked a little bit before on the podcast about whether Martin had Euron in mind at this point. He definitely didn't clash of kings because he brings him up by name in Theon's chapters and he also brings up the shade of the evening. So clearly the character was already forming in his head. Who knows whether it was in Game of Thrones. Uh, the only, for me, the only real, I mean, the closest direct clue is this moment where Bran sees the bones of, quote, a thousand other dreamers impaled upon the points of the ice spikes, implying that, I mean, there's a number of things that image could refer to that could be an image purely metaphorically for the uh, the green seers, you know, with the bones as the weirwoods and them being wrapped around them. Um, but of course, as, as Elmo, you know, notes, there's a, a lot of different resonances and these images can mean multiple different things. And so another more direct way to think about them is that Blood Raven has tried this with a thousand other kids. 
and that they all died, and that Bran is the, the only one who, who uh, has made it out. If Euron is indeed Blood Raven's rogue protege, as I strongly suspect him to be, that means he made it out too. But it's, if nothing else, that's an implication that this is not the first time Blood Raven has tried this. That Bran is the like the thousandth and first messiah that he has tried, <laughs> mm. and that that's does cool. that that does fit Blood Raven's character perfectly because of course the Blood Raven we know in the Duncan Egg stories is this very like utilitarian like I'm going to do terrible things if I think it's going to be in the service of my good cause I will sacrifice lives if if that helps the greater good and that might be what he's doing here magically and that is you know that that does raise the question say, yeah go ahead I would say that a thousand dreamers would be like all the people who have ever failed. And the question is like, well, how many has Bloodraven added to that tally? Probably, you know, possibly more. Yeah, possibly a that's few. an excellent point. Yeah, that's, and he's, you know, he's only been here for the last 50-ish years or so. Um, but but my, I have tinfoil about this, and actually what those impaled dreamers are is symbols of the others and the fact that the orig- the others have an origin right, right. in green in green seer magic. So Bran is trying to become a green seer. He's got this gift. Like to get into this dream to begin with, you have to have a gift. And then it's upon you to choose how you're going to use it. And if you fly, that's great. Then you get the burning eye vision and the warm bath and the wolf named Summer. It's all fire imagery for burning Brandon. Or you can get impaled on the ice spike and become a frozen dreamer. Which to me, the White Walkers of the Wood are very heavily, heavily suggested as coming from the wood, coming from the dark of the wood. White shadows, White Walkers of the Wood. They're walking around like white shadows, and the weirwoods are called white shadows. There's, I mean, when George Martin calls the others icy she, then he's telling you that they're icy versions of nature gods. Like the she of Irish folklore are basically nature spirits tied to trees. They're the old gods. I mean, it's a very direct reference Martin is playing on, but he's telling you the others are icy versions of them. So they're like icy tree spirits. So when I look at these impaled dreamers, that's what I think of is, as a symbolic clue that green seers can take a wrong turn and come out as white shadows somehow. I yes. agree completely. Uh, I think that, like you say, the, the color, color imagery especially links up there, the way the others are described. And I know you've talked about the, the Kingsguard in that domain as well. Um, and they and that really and that, and those two come together, of course, with Robert Strong, the the Kingsguard zombie, the Kingsguard White. Um, but uh, interesting for me here is the char- is, is Blood Raven's character and, and the implication that he's done all these sacrifices, because that I mean that is also an aspect of uh, of like you know shamanic tradition and fairy tales and this idea, like you say, of, of going too far, of you know flying too close to the sun to to bring us back to myth- to Greek mythology. There's um, Icarus and, references in that chapter for yes, sure, hugely, and 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 that's something that crops up in fantasy is is the the, sac- the mentor willing to sacrifice you. Dumbledore is a very popular example of that. Uh, there's a David Mitchell's novel, The Bone Clocks, uh, which is uh, similar to A Song of Ice and Fire in that you have this kind of very human story playing out on the surface, and the, the kind of the magic starts interjecting itself, and you, you kind of see how those two worlds work together. But there's this uh, part of the story is. The main character's little brother was uh, uh, possessed by one of one of these fairies in an attempt to kind of uh, root out and destroy this cabal of more vampiric fairies. Um, and uh, the good fairies tell the main character that you know we only did that uh, because your your little brother died. He had this fever, and you know he was an empty vessel, and so we, we took advantage of that. But it's later strongly hinted by one of the more vampiric fairies that what the the quote unquote good fairies actually did was kill her little brother. 
and you know, and take his body as a vessel, and they they, they deemed it a worthy sacrifice for the greater good. Oh, now, now, George Martin would never do something like that. <laughs> never, never wants to have that kind of layer going on, and that's what I kind of feel like we have for Blood Raven is this sense of, yes, he's warning Bran about the about the real threat. He's trying to to you know get him to mature and accept this role, but there's 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 so much again back to the blood stained hands of the weirwood. If you compare the leaves to hands with blood on them, that's what Blood Raven is. He's the weirwood with blood on his hands. Well, so here's here's the thing though, Martin. What Blood Raven is trying to do is to get Bran to adopt his mindset, where he he subsumes the personal desires in favor of the greater good. And so he's asking Bland to sacrifice and maybe not explaining exactly what he is sacrificing because he knows that Bran is the chosen one and he has to make these sacrifices. He does not have a choice. If, he does, if it does not happen, the universe will fail. And so he's basically there to guide Bran, who, who is destined to do these impossible and very difficult and awful things. It's already going to happen anyway. Like if Blood Raven doesn't play a midwife to this thing, then everyone dies. So what Bloodraven is essentially doing is it's kind of evil and Machiavellian or utilitarian or whatever, but really he's working for the greater good and teaching Bran what it means to work for the greater good. It's the same thing Corrin is teaching John when he's yes. telling him it doesn't matter about your honor. What matters is the wall and the living people and stopping the armies that are trying to kill everyone. And if you have to do some fucked up shit the people are going to diss your name about and call you a bastard for the rest of your life, it doesn't fucking matter <laughs> if you actually do what needs to be done. That's what matters. So it's the same lesson. Yeah, it's a very utilitarian mindset. That the, I agree completely. Justify the means, and that's a very Blood Raven type thing to do, as we discover in his history that he was willing to do dishonorable things, uh, like on the Redgrass Field, where he uses archers to take down the chivalry of the Blackfire Rebellion on the Redgrass Field, and that's a uh, uh, plays out through in the current narrative with Bran and having Bran do these terrible, awful things, and perhaps. You know, the, the example I thought of when you guys were talking was about the potential, if not probability, of the Jojen sacrifice, of Jojen becoming paste in order to open Bran's third eye for real and, and enhance his green-seeing abilities. Um, it's a, Yeah, it, the, uh, the the symbolism has bad news for anyone who's not a fan of Jojen paste. It, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's just so Blood Raven, man. It's just so Blood Raven. Um, this is true. <laughs> Speaking of Blood Raven, there's some imagery in this chapter that uh, points strongly in his direction. Yes, yes, there is. And this comes courtesy of a friend of the show and friend of ours in IRL. And that is Chloe, aka at Lies and Arbor on Twitter, who has a great post called A Thousand Eyes and One Gray Miss, in which she analyzes this interesting phraseology that Martin uses for. This chapter where it has Bran being surrounded by gray mists and being all around him. And it, I think it's five or six times in this chapter that this term gray mist is used. And what's interesting about the term gray mist is that we see it in other chapters as well. We see it in Ned's chapters, Cersei's chapters, Samwell's chapter, Melisandre's one chapter, and further Bran chapters. And we also see this in the Mystery Night, where gray mists show up at White Walls just prior to the arrival of Drumbeat, please, bump, 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 Blood Raven and his army to put down the second Blackfire. Oh, rebellion. I thought you were going to say Damon Blackfire the second. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But no, it's Bloodraven that's that shows up when these these gray mists show up at white walls. And so uh, Chloe has this terrific theory that the gray mists, uh, a lot of times, mean that Bloodraven is watching, or at least Bloodraven's presence is in the narrative. And of interest to Bran in this chapter in particular, those same gray mists appear in Theon's A Dance with Dragons and the Winds of Winter chapters. But instead of it being Bloodraven oh, that yeah. makes it appear... All over that one. Oh, yeah, like when they're climbing up the walls and everything like that. It's beautiful, haunting imagery. But it also has a purpose, and that's something that, you know, Alamo, you were bringing up about how these symbols and these emotional punches, they have resonance, but they also have a greater meaning as well in seeing the, the, the symbolism and the, the archetypes that Martin's using. So when the Grey Mists are appearing, though, in Theon's chapters, it's almost certainly not Bloodraven who's showing up in Winterfell and talking with Theon. It's actually Bran Stark himself who is learning at the feet of Bloodraven and using the same power that Bloodraven used to communicate with people, but especially Theon so far in the series. So come the Winds of Winter or the next Duncan Egg novella, whatever it's going to be, you see Grey Mists showing up in the narrative. Could be Bran checking it. Could also be Bloodraven. And I think that's, again... Terrific catch by Chloe, and I. Um, it, it was one of those theories that definitely made me excited because I don't. I feel like that a lot of times when I'm reading a Song of Ice and Fire these days, and reading a Song of Ice and Fire theorizing more specifically, uh, a lot of the things that I'm seeing are rehashes of things that I've I've read previously. Not to be arrogant or anything like that, but this is a theory that just kind of jumped out at me and, and grabbed me because it was something that I had never heard before, but I think is accurate and extremely exciting too. I love it too, and I'm about to build on Chloe's theory. Oh. Because she has just jogged loose something in my memory banks. Remember, how I was just saying the others come from the Weirwood Net? Mm hmm. Yes. Listen to Tormund talk about the others. You know nothing. You killed a dead man. I, I heard Mance killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead when their maesters come, when the white mists rise up. Hmm. How do you fight a mist, Crow? Shadows with teeth. Air so cold it hurts to breathe like a knife in your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? That's yeah. perfect. That's a, that lines up exactly right. So the white mist is like, if Bloodraven is the gray mist, just running with this idea, um, then the white mist is just like a slight variation on that idea. So this is, uh, you know, the white walkers of the wood, they come from the dark of the wood, or maybe they come from the mists. But, of course, the universal symbol of a gray mist is basically the fog of the netherworld, the bardo. It's the, af- it's, it's the liminal realm. It means that you're on the edge of reality and, and transforming into something else. And that's how Martin uses it in the uh, Ramsey Jane wedding scene, where the yes. mist is like a curtain at a, at a, you know, at a feast or at an, an opera event, and it's parting for everyone. And everyone's transformed, and they're coming out of the mists, and the mists are writhing around everywhere. So that's what the gray mist mean in general. So talking about the others as a white mist that comes from the, the wood, it, it's really telling you like the others come from the weirwood net. They come from the unconscious. They come from the netherworld. And then they sort of take corporeal form. And then they fuck your shit up. <laughs> exactly right. No, you brought up the Ramsey Jane wedding. And I'm going to get much more into this when my Theon essay series reaches that chapter. Uh, because uh, it's it's... They, even Theon mentions it feeling like they're in the underworld in this chapter, that they're all dead, uh, which gets back to his dream of being at a, at a, a feast of corpses in A Clash of Kings, and the sense that Winterfell has become kind of come this, this netherworld, this kind of stasis place, this, it's, it's dormant without a Stark, and it needs to be brought to life again by Bran, by the, by the, by the resurrected prince, and it's, it's been taken over in the meantime by Ramsay, and he has to, he has to be a, 
shoved aside for that to happen. But I like I like the idea of yeah, the others as white mist, uh, Blood Raven as gray mist. Could you argue that the shadow babies are the black mist? They kind of move in that same way. They're associated oh, with fire. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. No, the 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 shadow babies are basically inverse parallel of the others. The white yes. shadows versus black shadows. Mel and Stannis doing a succubus routine, just like Knights King and Knights Queen. Yada yada yada. Moons of Ice and Fire One. Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire podcast. <laughs> Talk about that a lot. Damn straight. Um, so so here's let me let me put you behind the curtain into someone like me and my process. All right. So this is how it works. It's very collaborative. Chloe has a theory. She's thinking about a certain train of thought. Uh, and she's got this idea, okay, I've noticed that mists seem to be consistent with Bloodraven. We see the mists around Bloodraven symbols. They seem to be tied to Bloodraven. And if, like I said, the mists represent the underworld. Bloodraven is the lord of the underworld. So this all makes a lot of sense. And so I have this brainwave. Well, here are white mists. And I already thought that the others came from the Weirwoods anyway. So to me, this connection makes sense. However... I'm not going to write a theory about this and try to huck it off to people on YouTube until I'm sure about it. And what I'm going to do to be sure about it is I'm going to pass this idea back to my friends on Twitter, and we're going to look for all the scenes with Miss, and we're going to start comparing them. And if this is a thing that's intentional that Martin is doing, then the pattern will simply bear out, and it will bear more fruit as we find more scenes with Miss, and all of a sudden it will make a whole lot of goddamn sense. Or it will fall apart, and we'll find scenes with Mist that don't have anything to do with Bloodraven, and it'll sort of peter out, and I'll be like, oh, well, it seemed like something, but I'm not really going to write a theory about it. Or it could just become a maybe, and I'll put it in the back burner, and then two years from now, I'm reading about Mist, and I've got a new mythology in mind, and all of a sudden it makes sense, and I'm like, oh, that was something. And So that's how this works. Like You get an idea, and you get excited about it, but then you have to pound it with actual like rational analysis, and see if you can destroy the idea, just like a sort of scientific process would. That's, exactly, that's, like you're you're forging steel, and you have to see if it'll shatter. Like you're forging Lightbringer. Right. That's it. Exactly. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so this chapter is full of haunting, beautiful imagery, and there's a lot about this chapter that I would admit is still mysterious to me. But has but a lot of the imagery has led to a number of interesting fan theories about what Martin is driving at. So midway through this chapter, Bloodraven tells Bran to look down, and Bran sees a series of very quick visions. And I, I figure a, a great way to kind of close out this podcast is to dive into each of the visions that Bran sees. And what I'll do is I'll play the straight man and be like, oh, well, Bran sees a Winterfell from an eagle's perspective. And you guys will be like, well, that means X or that means Y. And then I will, you know, tell you the correct meaning of, of this, of each individual uh, <laughs> bullet point that I'm using here. So the first thing that Bran sees is Winterfell from an eagle's perspective. Does that mean anything? Or is that just Winterfell from high above? Well, there's a meta aspect to it in that he's looking down at the, you know, the story itself from up above. It reminds me of Stannis looking at the painted table. Like, he's standing slightly outside the story, looking down at the continent, kind of observing. Again, like, you're, you, like it gives you a sense of being a privileged look. Like, you're, you're getting a glimpse at something you're not supposed to see that the characters don't always see. Um, I think that be, being above Winterfell and above Westeros gives gives you that kind of sense of it. I would say that it's simply a continuation of the theme that Bran has been developing. So before he falls, he's climbing around and saying how 
that he sees the castle from above and it's like a stone labyrinth and like a sure. stone tree and he knows the castle like nobody else does because he's up here with the crows. So when he actually flies above the castle, it's just a continuation of that idea and it is kind of actually direct. It's it's Bran flying. It's yeah. astral projection. This is the way that Bran's going to fly is, is through this sort of astral projection that the green seers are able to do. I would agree with both of you guys' takes on it. Um, the next thing he sees is Maester Lewin studying the sky with a telescope. We did kind of cover that in some depth before. Um, anything you guys want to add on that one? I guess just the, again, the, it's the, the sight motif. Like the Blood Raven's trying to get Bran to open his third eye to see things as they really are. And this is Maester Lewin using technology to see things. Again, that's he's the skeptical, uh, real-world, pragmatical... Pra- pragmatical, not a word. Pragmatic. Pragmatic. Ra- pragmatical. Pragmatic <laughs> rationalist. So that's his, that's, that's his kind of world. Uh, even just the image of bronze. Like, you know, I think about bronze, and I think about the early human technology and getting away from superstition and building our own stuff for the first time. It has that kind of resonance to me. Okay, so this one is actually really super simple. Uh, Bran is the comet. Wait, wait, you said simple, I thought. Wait, what? Oh, <laughs> oh. So, so Lewin's looking so up observes. at him? Okay, yeah, I yeah, can see that. Yeah, he's looking up at Bran, that's right. Because, because Bran sense. is the burning... The burning brand represents the fire of the gods. The burning brand has to fall from heaven. That's what Bran is doing, is falling from the tower to earth, like the fire of the gods, like that thunderbolt coming down and striking the tree. Uh, and when he lands, he basically lands in the tree. He lands in a weirwood vision, and eventually he's going to end up at the bottom of that tree. So his fall from the tower is leading to him striking the tree like the thunderbolt. So Bran is himself the fire of the gods, the light bringer child, if you will. And that's why when he's looking up at the comet, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that Bran, that he's literally looking at, I, I presented it in a literal way, but essentially it's, you could almost you. read it like, like, he's, like he's looking up at Bran flying, which is a comet foreshadowing because Bran is actually kind of synonymous with the comet as <laughs> a symbol of the fire of the gods. That's yes, and, and, and a symbol of that magical world that the comet initiates. No, I, I, I love that. I think that, that fits perfectly. Yeah, I got nothing else to add to that. Um, the next thing he sees is Rob is practicing with live steel in the Winterfell yard. I will give my very quick interpretation of that is that it's a, uh, basically it, it's talking about, it's basically calling back to the first Arya chapter and the, in Catelyn 3, where uh, Rob Stark has to, um, is, is, asked to play with, asked to use live steel when he's practicing against Joffrey and uh, Roger Cassell refuses and says they have to use blunted tourney blades. And then in Catelyn 3, Catelyn notices that Rob is looking at, um, is, is looking at Rob and sees that he's carrying live steel and Rob kind of like pleads with her with his eyes that he can, can I please, you know, keep holding on to the live steel? And Catelyn says, it's, it's past time for you to have, be holding live steel. Uh, it also, I think, to uh, lets us know in the story that we are moving to a war footing in the story. It's it's no longer the story of Rob as a boy. It's becoming the story of Rob moving on to being the war leader that we see him in his uh, his best and his noblest and at times his worst in the in a Game of Thrones, a Clash of Kings, and then a Storm of Swords. I agree. It's great about points, his ma- Jeff. Yep, it's about his maturity. His his growth in the in the way that mirrors Bran in this chapter that they're both trying to grow up. It's the fall into terrible knowledge. In Rob's case, the terrible knowledge isn't magical; it's war. That's what Rob's yeah. terrible knowledge is. Um, but yeah, I agree that that's that's it's a it's a nice little character beat for Rob, kind of buried into this Bran chapter. I was just going to say it's a great point that Jeff made, and this idea of wooden swords versus steel swords 
is really strongly tied to the Starks, and it has symbolic meanings. But the first level meaning is definitely just what you're saying, Jeff. Um, you know, it's it's a symbol of Rob becoming a man, probably a little too soon. Yeah. And it's laced with laced with sadness because it doesn't really work out. It's Rob trying to be tough, and it's paralleled with uh, when Bran sees John sleeping alone uh, in a cold bed at the wall and growing hard. That's another one we're going to talk about. Yep. Uh, it's a similar deal. But uh, Martin, my favorite passage where Martin plays with this idea is the beginning of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 2, which is, I believe, the chapter where we see um, Rob enthroned as the King of Winter. And if it's not that chapter, it's like uh, the one after it. I forget which. But yeah. here it is. Opening of the chapter. As she slept amidst the rolling grasslands, Catelyn dreamt that Bran was whole again, that Arya and Sansa held hands, that Rickon was still a babe at her breast. Rob, crownless, played with a wooden sword, and when all were safe asleep, she found Ned in her bed, smiling. Sweet as it was, sweet and gone too soon. Dawn came cruel, a dagger of light. She woke aching, alone and weary, weary of riding, weary of hurting, da-da-da-da-da-da, I want to weep, I want to be comforted, I'm so tired of being strong, and it goes on and on and on. So, We've got this idea of, of just what you said. Rob playing with a wooden sword. He doesn't have a crown. And, of course, that's not the case. The reality is much crueler. And when she wakes up, that is the cruel reality that she's being forced to face. Yeah. And that cruelty embodied by a, cruelty embodied by a dagger of light, which can expect the fiery sword imagery. Uh, so, yeah, it's all, all linking up nicely. Yeah. Yeah, because you could, you could say that uh, in many ways it was... Bran receiving that fire of the gods by falling out of the tower that that shattered her dreams because she's wishing that Bran was whole again. Well, he's not whole because he messed with that fire of the gods stuff, (laughs) the dagger, the cruel dagger of light. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Taken to another level that's uh, hits you in the heart for sure. That's what we do. That's what we do. (laughs) And then uh, after we see Rob, we see Hodor carrying an, or rather that Bran sees Hodor carrying an anvil to Micken's forge. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say that's a pretty direct metaphor between Hodor and the anvil, because Hodor is the anvil on which Bran forges his magical powers. Hodor is the vessel that Bran uses later in Storm of Swords and Dance with Dragons to t- tie, try out his skin changing. And of course, we know from the show, which Martin has confirmed, something like Hold the Door is happening, that this is going to lead to Hodor's death. So that's I would I think that's a, that's a pretty blunt link. Hodor is Bran's anvil, for better or for worse. Yeah, uh, I I am now speechless. That's great. <laughs> Same. Well, Same thank you, sir. And then we have the Weirwood Tree and the Godswood rustling in a quote chill wind. Uh, LML, I, I think you would be the one to answer this one. What this image means? Well, okay. So, isn't it uh, also gazing at its own reflection in the weir- in the pond? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's the part that's always grabbed me because. Uh, Martin has called us to Mesoamerican myth by doing so much with obsidian. And specifically, Mm. he's taken obsidian and turned it into a magical mirror, a thing that uh, wizards can use to peer across vast distances. That is simply lifted right out of Mesoamerican myth, where shamans always use dragonglass mirrors, like a dark, it was called a dark mirror. And you'd gaze into it and do witchcraft. And modern witchcraft people use a dark mirror as well. Same idea. They look at their own reflection in the dark mirror. They think about demons or something and like bad things happen. I'm not really sure how that works. But <laughs> I know that the, the dark mirror is a thing. And Martin is showing us that uh, with the black, cold black pond that's uh, basically synonymous with black ice. 
and he's he's gay the weirwood is gazing at its own reflection so it's like it's almost like imagine the weirwood green seer using a glass candle or something like that uh but of course glass candles and weirwood astral projection are just like two sides of the same coin really so that's what i think yeah. about that one I agree and it's, it's like it's imagine if that's brand in the tree for the first time he's looking in the pool because he doesn't know what he is like am i what what oh i'm the tree like he's looking in the pond to try to recognize himself and see whose eyes he's looking out of. Uh, and that, you know, that ties right back into the themes of identity and maturity we've been dealing with the whole time. Like, you think of the Lion King when, like, Simba has to look into the pool and see that he's, you know, he's becoming his father and he's fulfilling that image. You know, Bran has oh, to do this. Oh, good, s- good. Hey. Hmm. Bran has to do the same it's, kind of thing. It's a collaborative work here, man. We're always... <laughs> well, Lion King is a whole can of worms. I mean, that thing oh, is yeah. dripping with archetypes and classic symbols and mythology. I mean, that's that's something I, I I noticed rewatching it. Is yeah, from 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 the very phrase "circle of life" forward, that's a, that's a story that deals with a lot of the same kind of recurring recurring mythos, death and rebirth imagery uh, that we're talking yeah, about I, here. I I love that kind of stuff. I mean, that's exactly what we should be putting in front of our children, uh, in my opinion. Agreed. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> things with and and this is where to go back to learning to value my Christian upbringing, like the stories sure. and parallels. The the Bible is just tingling with metaphor yeah. and and parable and analogy, and that is the Bible is a tremendous example of using those esoteric means of communication to teach people something. The whole idea with a parable is you have to show, you can't tell, you can't explain what love is. You have to tell a parable that demonstrates love, and that helps communicate the definition of it. And the highest truths have to be taught esoterically. They can never be relayed straightforward. You have to use metaphor and symbolism to go to these deep concepts. And the Bible does it. Martin learned it largely in part from the Bible and other world mythology, and that's where I certainly learned a lot of it. And movies like Lion King are just as good, in a sense, as you know, teaching kids those Bible stories or the old hand, even you probably seen these, Jeff, the Hanna Barbera oh, looking yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bible animated Bible stories and stuff. I watched all of those when I was a kid, and those are great. They're great. They're classic stories full of symbols and myths. And you better make me shut up for this podcast is four hours. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree. They are great, and the symbols are a fantastic way that Martin communicates theme and uh, character definitely in the story. Um, the next one is something we did talk about in our foreshadowing section, but is a it is a galley coming out of White Harbor carrying Catelyn who looks at the dagger, that is the Catspaw dagger, and a seasick Ryder Cassell with a storm gathering ahead of them. Uh, we, we kind of did attack that in the foreshadowing, but is there anything else you guys want to add on that one? I would just link it to the next couple images. Uh, Catelyn looking at the dagger, Ned pleading with Robert, Sansa crying herself to sleep, Arya watching, holding her secrets. These are all character-defining images. These are all moments yes. where cutting through to the core of what is driving the character, what is motivating him at this moment, who they are. Catelyn is increasingly obsessed with the damage being done to her family, and this is going to lead her to some very questionable decisions. Uh, decisions, I think, that are sometimes the best given the information she has, but yes. questionable in terms of their overall impact on the plot. Ned's uh, relationship with Robert and how that's falling apart and disillusioning him is, as I've said before, I think the core of his story. Uh, Sansa crying herself to sleep, dealing with her losses. That's something that's going to happen multiple times over the course of the series. That's only really beginning for her. And same thing with Arya. Like Arya silently watching, holding her secrets close. Like that's that's a, that's a that's an Arya image we're going to see in various ways over and over again in the series. So Bran is kind of 
he's just as Blood Raven is cutting to the core of metaphysics and what's going on in the world at, at large. He's showing brand the core of, of his family the, the, the people in your lives this is who they are this is what's going on with them and just as a writing technique observation you'll notice that uh, this part of the vision is very very straightforward and almost literal like Catelyn is on a boat yes uh, yep. you know Arya is basically working with secrets uh, crying herself to sleep that is almost literal as Sansa was crying herself to sleep every night so Martin has chosen literal things that the people are doing that are also symbolic of their sort of theme yes and so you can read this whole vision literally which is what you do the first time you read it you're like oh you know, Bran is you're freaked out by the fact that Bran seems to have astral projection vision he can actually see Catelyn on the boat and that's a revelation all on its own the fact that Bran can see these literal yes. things but then, of course, these literal things also have symbolic meanings. And that's how all this works. It's always both. It's never a choice between like a deeper secondary meaning and the original meaning. It's just Martin's skill in being able to do both at once. Yeah. And I would just say we brought up, we brought up Disney. We're bringing up stories that do a great job at introducing symbolic ideas into pop culture. I would also cite Star Wars just came to mind as a series that has always done an incredible job uh, at reconciling the Classic. two. Classic. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, st- um, a student of Joseph Campbell. Yes, exactly. So, um, but yeah, that's, I think otherwise, yeah, we, we, we already talked about the kind of foreshadowing elements of, of Catelyn on the galley, the, the storm gathering ahead, so. Yes, and now we come to, I think, one of the more interesting uh, visions, and that is that Bran sees shadows all around, quote-unquote, them, who are like, who is them, that is likely Ned, Arya, and Sansa. So, Shadow One is described as dark as ash face of a hound sandor right yeah i think yes i I, I mean uh, maybe there's other resonances that can be teased out but specifically dark not only just the hound but dark as ash as in what's left behind after you're burned like that's a very specific word choice that points to sandor clegane and everything he's gone through plus he is physically there so it makes sense interesting I always thought of it as ash, like an ash tree. I didn't think of it like ash, like actual ash. I guess I was just overthinking that that one unnecessarily. Oh, I had that's I hadn't even thought of that one either. So I guess we both good thing we're teaming up, Jeff. We're both good spotting thing. these things. Well, Mister Brendan Beefish, you'll be happy to know that uh, the answer once again is both because Yggdrasil, <laughs> which is the influence for the weirwoods, which are like the burning tree, the Yggdrasil is an ash tree. Hmm. So go. Martin is doing a whole bunch of stuff because the, the, the weirwoods are symbolic ash trees and they're symbolic burning trees, which make ash. And he's just running to take, cause he's also a big dork. And so when he does these like, sort <laughs> of, when he does these True. wordplay connections, he dorks it up all the way. Like he takes it, he takes it far. So yeah. Yeah. The ash, the ash there is, is a double reference I would say, but primarily, yes, that's the hound. Interesting. Okay. So we got Shadow 2. Shadow 2 is described as armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. Jamie? Almost certainly. People have pointed out that there's some, there's a, a hint at Ober in there too. Uh, especially given uh, the no, comparison it's Jamie. to the sun. We, we, don't, we don't need to humor bad theories on this podcast. That's not what we do. That's not what we do. Jamie, a brand sees Jamie looking like the sun when he has a nightmare version of his falling experience. So it's very, very straightforward. There's no debate. Number three, Shadow Three, a giant in armor made of stone with only darkness and thick black blood behind his visor. That's Gregor Clegane, whose blood was turned black uh, and by the uh, uh, 
by the poison that Oberyn stuck him with, and he is obviously a giant armor made of stone. Uh, the mountain's armor is described as stone countless times, and only darkness in, in behind his visor implies that his head's been cut off. So this is open and shut case. There is no debate. What's the next subject? Well, well I think, I, I mean, know. it's interesting you brought, you brought up Oberyn, <laughs> and I think the, one of the reasons people bring up Oberyn in this context is because of the allusion here to the poison that he puts in Gregor's veins. But I agree, the, by far the primary function of the Armored Like the Sun character is Jamie. I think it's interesting that we get our first vision of Gregor here, because unless I'm mistaken, he hasn't even been mentioned in the text up to this point. Uh, we've met Samnor, but I don't think we've... Have we even heard tell of Gregor prior to this chapter? So Which is, gonna, that's interesting, because... I, I'm a, all, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 it's, it is it is interesting, but I'm going to push back a little bit that George originally meant uh, the mountain in this, this, this uh, version. And the reason why is that I'm not 100% positive that George R. R. Martin had Gregor as un-Gregor in mind back when he's writing A Game of Thrones. Um, what's interesting, and this might be a little bit controversial, so bear with me, um, there is some old... Uh, threadboards from like, like 2000, 2001, where someone suggests essentially that Gregor Clegane could become this horrifying Frankenstein-like monster. And I believe it was actually uh, someone we cited before, Linda Attenson, who made the suggestion and seemed to have made the suggestion to George. So I'm not 100% sure we're talking about Gregor Clegane necessarily. Although I can see where Martin can do a kind of a, a soft and easy retcon of this vision to mean Gregor Clegane. But I, I accept that I could be completely wrong about that. Uh, it's just something that I, I think is potentially might not have been originally envisioned as Gregor Clegane, but is probably Gregor Clegane now, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that, I mean, it is interesting because Gregor is not there with them. He's not with yeah. the King's Party, whereas both Sandor and Jamie are. So, I mean, and then there's, well, then you get to questions like when, you know, you have shadows all around them. Does that mean these characters are just with Ned Arya and Sansa, or are we supposed to interpret them as affecting Ned Arya and Sansa? And if that's the case, you know, how do you plot out, you know, Gregor does have an, a strong impact in Arya's story, also arguably in Ned's story, because Ned sends Beric to kill him. Yes. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's what a, I was going to bring up. That's a question I have with this part of, of the visions. Are we supposed to be seeing relationships between these figures or just merely their presence? Is there impact going on here or is it just Martin showing us them? So I would say that think about these three shadows as like icebergs that the Stark Titanic will break up on. Okay. okay. Gregor, Clegane, okay. Gregor, Gregor Clegane shatters the Stark army. The last bit of Starks that's left out there with uh, it's basically Ned's personal guard that he sends off with Barrack. Yes, and 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 Barrack shatters it, or I mean, uh, the mountain shatters that, and then the Hound uh, has a big hand in the downfall of House Stark, uh, even though he turns around and protects Arya and Sansa. He's the right hand man of Joffrey. Yes, um, and also the Hound instigates the incident with uh, the the Baker Boy and all that that you guys have already talked about. Yes. Um, and that, that is the beginning of the fracture between Ned and Robert and Sansa and Arya and Ned and his kids and all of it. I mean, that's a hugely dramatic event, which, again, if I could sort of just polish off Martin's <laughs> fucking credo, like, how about taking a chapter about a couple of teenagers fighting with a stick sword and a wolf and uh, a little mock trial over who hit who first 
and making that like a pivotal, riveting event in a fantasy story. Oh, yeah. totally. And he, 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 That's amazing. he scales it up perfectly. I would also just say one more thing is that all of these three characters are central to Martin's debate about knighthood, Jamie, Sandor, and Gregor. Uh, that you have mm-hmm. Jamie and Sandor standing as inversions of each other is interesting because, of course, Jamie uh, has this public presentation of, of glorious knighthood. You know, the, the the shining armor, the handsome face, doing well in tourneys. When his real, his 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 real act of knighthood was was hidden, protecting people from the fire, like the fire that scarred Sandor. And Sandor stands in contrast as this kind of as the way he thinks of himself as being emblematic of the folly of knights and the lie of that whole tradition, but will himself kind of start to live up to it. And you have Gregor standing over them both as the ultimate symbol of uh, of the failure of knighthood as institution. The very fact that he was anointed at all and continues to hold the title uh, is, yes. is, is a betrayal of everything knighthood stands for. So uh, I think that's interesting, given that Bran is a character who longs to be a knight and has this idealized image of knighthood in his head. That is part of his terrible fall into knowledge. He's seeing these characters who have wrestled with knighthood in a very dark and dramatic way, in a way that doesn't line up with the stories. Okay, so check this out. Now, to give uh, to cut against my own sort of very dogmatic uh, take that I was just giving there, half half in jest, you know, um, is that the fact that Martin creates so many uh, symbolic parallels with various characters is what creates the idea of possible theories. Like, for example, sure. Mance Raider and Rhaegar Targaryen share a lot of symbolism and they share a certain fatherly role to John in different ways. And so you can look at those common symbols and come up with man's Rhaegar theory. If you don't remember to run your glorious insight through the, the, the ringer of logic and possibility, <laughs> right? Which, which, those things. which then, which would break that tinfoil theory up on the rocks. If you just look at it for five seconds. So, yeah. Okay. So in this case, we're talking about, who is this giant? All right. So it, it really fits the mountain in the fact that you've got the black blood specifically and the stone armor. The stone armor's descriptions are all over the mountain. And we just made a case for how it makes sense because the mountain helps to destroy the Starks. However, let's think about Peter Baelish. Peter Baelish's sigil is, his old sigil, is the Titan head from the Titan of Bravos, yes. which is a, a stone giant which gets decapitated. Uh, in the in the sigil, because the, the sigil is just the head and not the giant. So that implies him decapitated, just like the mountain. And you could certainly make a case that Peter Baelish is the shadow of shadows that destroys House Stark. I mean, he's orchestrating the entire thing mm-hmm. with the whole Lysa deception and all that. So you could certainly make a case that this giant is Peter Baelish. The thing is that Peter Baelish doesn't have any black blood symbolism. No. And that's True. the thing that makes me think that, first and foremost, he's talking about the mountain. But the thing is that Martin's archetype of a decapitated giant is something that pops up in many places. And so you have these you know, uh, correlations between Peter Baelish and the mountain, even though they're kind of different characters on the surface. And that could lead people to think, well, and I know people that think that third shadow is Peter Baelish. Interesting. And really, he does menace the Starks more than anyone else. And he also lives up on the mountain up at the Eyrie. So seeing him as the top pinnacle of these three shadows kind of makes sense also. And he's the master string puller. Yeah. And he's he might well be the savage giant that Sansa is supposed to slay in the Castle of Snow from the Ghost of Highheart's yes. vision. 
So that might all that might all that might all link up. And both Gregor and Peter Baelish are both among the people who hold Harrenhal. Gregor holds it physically. Peter holds the title. But they're both associated with that castle and all the magical hijinks that goes with it. And I was just going to say, I was just trying to say, what happens to the stuffed giant, uh, the doll, <laughs> you know, that is used as a giant? His head gets ripped off. Yep. So it's just again and again and again the same idea. Um, and and the thing yes. is that if you take all the decapitated giants and turn it into a study, eventually you'll figure out what he's trying to say. Sure. And then then it, all of this gets more exciting, and that's yeah. Therein lies the chase. Therein lies the chase. And so that's why we can have this big thriving community that's thousands of people all around the world analyzing these books in real time before they're finished. The reason why it works is because there is so much depth. Even these quick little passages and nine-page chapters have all of this depth. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we're not even done yet. (laughs) So then we get uh, the Free Cities, Bran sees the Free Cities, the Dothraki Sea, Vase Dothrak, the Fable Land of the Jade Sea, a shy by the shadow where dragons stir beneath the sunrise. Yes. And that does take us directly into Sir James R.'s question, which is, what's the deal with the dragons and a shy? To a shy by the shadow where dragons stir beneath the sunrise. Nearly all of his other visions here turn out to be things happening right now elsewhere in the world. So I take this as strong evidence there were then dragons in a shy. Is this an abandoned plot thread, along with Danny's journey to a shy? Seems to undermine the dragons bringing magic back into the world. Thoughts? Well, on the one hand, he's right that most of these visions seem to be taking place right now. On the other, you could look at this as a parallel image to the Heart of Winter, which seems like it's it's been there for a long time, and that you could just be seeing, maybe Bran is seeing a version of the birth of the dragons. Maybe he's seeing just a vision of Essos as just the place where dragons come from. Uh, but yeah, if, if if it's if you take it more literally than this, this might be abandoned foreshadowing for a shy, which is something we've already touched on when talking about Danny's character. Um, it does it does contradict somewhat with with dragons being gone, but it's 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 even rumored elsewhere in this first book that dragons might still be a thing in the far far east even before Danny brings them back. The problem is that nobody but shadowbinders can journey up the river Ash to Stigai, the corpse city at the heart of the shadow. Only shadow binders. Yeah, exactly. So nobody really knows. If there are dragons in the shadow, they're not very accessible. Let's put it that way. No, this, this, you're, you're right on the first count, Emmett, is that this is showing us the Song of Ice and Fire. It's showing us dragons and others, yes. fire and ice, a shy in the heart of the shadow versus uh, the heart of winter as two opposite poles of the planet. Absolutely. All of that stuff, that's what we're being shown. And, and you could sort of logically extrapolate that Martin is showing us to beat the terrifying things in the heart of winter. We're going to need dragons from a shy dragons, eggs from a shy as Illyrio would say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right before blood Raven shows brand the heart of winter, he shows blood. He shows brand how to beat the heart of winter. I think that's like deliberately what, but what blood Raven and George right. Martin. That's a simple way uh, to are say doing it here. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I would also point out too, that Martin has said that, um, there's been we will never see a shy except in flashback and glass vision, candle vision. Um, but he says yes a glass candle vision but he said that there has there is a point of view character that has been a sh- been to a shy and that character of course is Melisandra and what's fascinating and interesting about Melisandra is that Martin has also said that she will have chapters in the Winds of Winter where we'll be exploring a shy in her point of view oh. so I'm going to be very curious if there's going to be something 
of Melisandre seeing winged serpents as Bran potentially sees a dragon in a Clash of Kings. We'll get to that in you know a year or so from now. Um, but is Melisandre going to recall seeing dragons from her youth in in a shy? It's something that I'm I'm curious that we'll, whether we're going to get something more about that from Mel's point of view come the Winds of Winter. That's entirely possible. Yeah, there's there's basically two ways that we're gonna get that glimpse of a shy, which is yeah, Melisandre's recollections and the glass candle that Marwyn the Mage is bringing to Daenerys inevitably. Um, have, have you have you heard that one, Big <laughs> Fish? Have I told you my, that, my no, theory about that? I don't that? think so. It's actually just really, really simple logic. You're Marwyn the Mage. You are using a glass candle to monitor both Daenerys and the events at the Wall. You believe that the fate of the world hinges upon the battle of the dragons against the others. That's very clearly what Martin believes. He believes that Daenerys Targaryen is the only hope for the world, and now his mission is to go and find her as quick as he can and help her. Do you bring one of your glass candles with you when you go to help the savior of the world fight the last battle? Or do you leave you, it behind? Probably, probably take it with you. Yeah. Probably take it with you. That would be smart. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of anyone in his position that would be like, oh, well, technically these belong to the Citadel, and they do have four of them. And <laughs> they never use them. I mean, but somebody might notice them. No, he took one of those fuckers. Of course he did. And he's going to turn up in Marine to, or somewhere around there to help Danny. He's going to have a big glass candle in his bag, and Danny is going to become a true Valerian Dragonlord sorceress and she's going to learn how to use that motherfucker. And that is how Martin is going to up the ante with like her Quave dream visions. And I believe that that is how Danny will go to Ashai because the reason why she's got to go to Ashai is to discover truth. There's a truth in Ashai, Quaith says, waiting for her. And it's probably about dragons in Azora High, one would think. And the way that she's going to go there is not by a long, boring sea voyage, but by astral projection and of course, like you said, through Melisandre's uh, memory. So, Tip to uh, develop, aspiring writers, you don't sail to a shy. <laughs> you don't actually show people getting off the ferry at a city built of black stone and what it's like and where you find food. and You don't do any of that. You only, If you want a shy to remain mysterious, you give people little glimpses of it in memories or glass candle hazy visions, and then, it ke- and then it's still ominous. You, know, you don't puncture that mystery. Martin very quickly realized he like, didn't actually want Danny to sail to a shy. That would be stupid. Yeah. And then Bran turns his eye north. Then he turns north, and then we get a series of quick flashes of what Bran sees, and he sees the wall. He sees Jon sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of warmth fled him. He sees the haunted forest, rivers, frozen shore, dead plains beyond the haunted forest, and finally the heart of winter. And this, a lot of these one, these, um, Things that Bran sees have led to a lot of discussion. Was George R. R. Martin foreshadowing John's death, for instance? That whole idea of John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing yes. pale and hard as the memory of warmth fled him. Yes. And, you know, I have a, a good friend by the name of LML who has the theory that uh, <laughs> that that John's uh, is going to be more corpse-like come the winds of winter, more cold hands-like, so to speak, in that... Uh, I, I, if I could speak frankly, my favorite essay of yours on the uh, on what on on Cold Hands' relationship to John and what Cold Hands means for John's story, I, I'd like to think that yes, that means that John's death was foreshadowed very early on in a Game of Thrones and it was always in the works in Martin's I, Martin's writing. And to plug Radio Westeros, um, they're the ones that really honed in on specific foreshadowing about John's body being stored in the ice yes. cells. It's really really strong when you put it all together, and that's. 
one of the actually that episode of Radio Westeros was one of the things I was listening to when I made my initial discoveries, and it was very strong influence on me. So, yeah, that's that's I and thank you very much for uh, yeah. the kind words on the Sacred Order of Green Zombies series. That was a fun one. I mean, anything anytime you can talk about Santa Claus and Patch Face <laughs> and Cold Hands and you know Sir Nunos all in one uh, go, that's pretty good stuff. Yeah, agree, agree, and I think uh, Martin might be setting up uh, Craig on Karstark as the vessel here because he's currently in the ice cells. Melisandre could potentially use a glamour to swap out if she needed to to do so to hide John's body. Oh well, Krieg, so, yeah, dude, Krieg and Karstark is a total foreshadowing for John. If you look at that scene, um, he's like growling like a wolf. So it's like imagine this yep, a man yep. wolf that's frozen in the ice cell. You know, it's like that's John. Yep. And he's also he the Karstarks are like bastard Starks. They're like an offshoot of the Starks in the very much the way that John is yep. like the bastard Stark. And there's there's more detailed symbolic language there, but it's really heavy. So. Yeah, this is John being foreshadowed in the ice cells, being dead. It's a foreshadow. It's metaphorical for the idea of a Targaryen dragon seed being given to the icy quote-unquote bloodline of Starks. So you've got this idea of this this John Snow, this dragon person who's locked in the ice of the wall, kind of like it's like just like all the rumors of the dragon under Winterfell, the dragon's egg under Winterfell. Like Winterfell is this capital of the north, but underneath are these symbols of dragons that hint at John's dragon heritage sort of locked away in the frozen north of the ice. So I see that as symbolically yep. consistent with his body in the ice cell and you know same same deal. And there's a sense of you know as Tyrion says in Tyrion 2 that the north goes on forever. That what Bran's looking at is just not the end the physical end of the North, but that's just that it, he's found the place where it keeps going and like kind of leaves physical reality behind. There's this great quote from a, a golden compass. It's a, a Lyra was thrilled at those times with the same deep thrill. She'd felt all her life on hearing the word North. And I get that sense from this part of the chapter that you're, you are being brought into a, this kind of dreadful sublime, this again, the, the heart of winter where we're all, the very idea and aesthetic of North comes from that you're being brought to brought to that, and it's something that uh, that, that terrifies Bran. There's the image of the tears freezing on his cheeks, which is something we see. Old Nan brings it up in her story. Big Bucket Wool brings it up when he's saying why his men are fighting for the Ned's little girl because it's a better life than dying alone in the snow with the tears freezing on your cheeks. Uh, so it's yeah that that image of yeah. You know, of your of being being alone with your fear at the end of at the end of your life, instead of conquering your fear, which is what Brand does at the end of the chapter. Like these these are the choices you're being given. Do you give in to your fear? Or do you fight it? Cool. Yeah. Tears tears are another symbol you can write essays and essays about. Like the tears of oh sure. You know, Lysa uses the tears of Lys and then talks about the tears, the tears as she's crying and being thrown out of the icy you know veil out the moon door. Mm-hmm. And then the wall weeps icy tears itself. And here's Bran with icy tears on his cheeks. You know, because when the wall melts, they say that it weeps. Uh, so, yeah. Yes, indeed. I won't go. I won't. Uh, I can see Jeff's head like rolling off his shoulders oh, no. here. Uh, I'm yeah, just looking no. down at my dog because he's like <laughs> having a bad dream. So. <laughs> You're having a bad he's dream. Ha- he's, he's having his own fever dream. Blood Raven's yes, coming to your dog. That's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we, we talk about the Heart of Winter. We talk, we kind of covered that in, in significant depth, depth before. Nothing really to really add besides that it's talking about the others, I think, most likely. Um, with, of course, Winter is Coming being Blood Raven's final, or not final, but one of the things he says after Bran sees the uh, the Heart of Winter. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, again, it's so perfect that Martin doesn't describe the heart of winter here. He knows he doesn't need to. He knows he already has our imagination at full tilt. It would just be disappointing and overwrought to like give us any images except that image of Bran looking into it do you want me to, and reacting do you want with fear. Me to, do That's all you need. Do you, you, want, me, you want me to tell you uh, uh, what's, what's there? I, I yeah, tell please. You. It's, uh, by all means. It's a moon meteor. <laughs> no! Dun dun dun! How did how did we how did we know, folks? How did how could we have guessed? <laughs> drink, motherfuckers! Drink, drink, drink! drink. Shot, <laughs> shot, <laughs> shot, <laughs> shot, <laughs> shot, yeah, no. shot, 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 shot. moon moon meteor is like the triple triple shot keyword. Well, uh, not kidding though. Not <laughs> kidding. Uh, when the sh- when the, when the show depicted their heart of winter and it was full of black obelisks around a weirwood tree, uh, I was like, ooh, 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 those look like meteor obelisks, but. Who knows? That's that's one of my tinfoils. It's a good one. It's definitely a good one. So that is all of Bran's visions that we see. And these won't be the last uh, mystical visions that Bran is going to have in dreams. And it's not definitely not going to be the last time he's going to be visited by the Three-Eyed Crow and by Bloodraven throughout the narrative. And that's something to definitely look forward to. And But I think that about covers this chapter. Man, we spent three hours just about three hours on a uh, chapter that is about six pages on my kindle nine pages on the uh, published version i think we probably <laughs> spent about the same well actually probably not we probably did not spend about the same amount of time that martin did in writing this chapter but it definitely feels that way right now but i am full full of full <laughs> of amazing symbolism and awesome analysis and lml thank you so freaking much for coming and joining us i've been looking forward to this for months now since we first started talking about you coming on to this chapter and uh yeah i'm thrilled to to have you on and thrilled to be able to go back and listen to this because i get first dibs on it as i'm editing it so uh, thank you so much for coming on oh uh, it's been a real pleasure i had a lot of fun with Emmett when he came on we did a live stream together and of course you and i have, yes. have chatted for a long time and so i already feel like we have a little bit of rapport and i was looking forward to this very much too and if I could just put a coda on everything we've done, I would just say that this is why it takes five years yes. to write a book. Martin was already writing at this high of a level in a Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. early on in a Game of Thrones. He's been developing this skill the whole time. So by the time you get to Dance with Dragons stuff, he's doing like next. I mean, the Wayward Bride, dude. Please. There is no way that I will let you do the Wayward Bride chapter without having me back on to obliterate any sense of time and orientation that you may have or have intended for your podcast because that is my favorite chapter in the entire series, The Wayward Bride. It's got six different moon-cracking symbolisms going on, and it's got the trees turning to warriors, Asha Greyjoy, one of my favorite characters, I mean... Stannis mm-hmm. appearing in the woods with ar- warriors armored like trees. Martin, there's when we get the winds of winter, it will yes. be worth it. I promise you. That is all I can say. Agreed. Can't put it any better than that. So, um, Elmo, where can we find your stuff, your podcast? Your uh, I know you have a, a Patreon as well. Uh, as as I told Aziz, plug your shit, bro. Um, I'm the easiest person to find in the world. There's nobody else named Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Uh, if you start typing, if you type in Lucifer and Lightbringer, you'll get my stuff, a little bit of the TV show Lucifer, and a couple other links that you shouldn't click on. And that's about it. So, 
It's LucifermeansLightbringer.com, and the YouTube channel is called Lucifer Means Lightbringer. My actual podcast is called Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, and again, if you put in Mythical Astronomy of anything like that, you'll find it in iTunes. And I will just say that I recorded most of the panels from Con of Thrones, and nice. I've got some video that will be out before this podcast is out. So check out my YouTube channel for some footage of Con of Thrones, and I'm looking forward to... Ice and Fire Con, of course, I know your lady Chloe is, is hands-on with running that one. I've had the same sort of sense of longing and pangs as I watched all the pictures roll out <laughs> from Ice and Fire Con and how much fun everyone had. Now I've gone and participated in a con, and I feel like I've really got this increased sense of family and kinship with everybody that I've been in person, so I really can't meet, can't wait to meet you guys in person. I didn't meet you guys at Con of Thrones, so look forward to seeing you in Ice and Fire Con and many cons to come. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. And Absolutely. Sir. Would it thank, be, be okay thank you if we're uh, coming on? It was a delay. Oops, sorry. Yeah. Um, Go ahead again, Jeff. Would it be okay if I said that you're going to come on for the uh, Danny 3 episode? Is that okay? Uh, yes. So that's another one where I'll, I'll hunt you down and troll you endlessly if you. Uh, I'll, I will mail you, I'll personally mail you uh, cassette mixtapes of all the different Radiohead songs that I love the best. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like an old school mixtape like we used to make in the 80s. And it would be just tape after tape of Radiohead. This is the version of Airbag where they just tried it with acoustic guitars. Exactly. The unreleased version of Amnesiac. Eight, 12-minute version of Life is a Glass House, dude, with a full orchestra. That that sounds amazing. Oh, it is. I love but, that um, <laughs> So, ra- Jeff's uh, unreasonable radio and hatred aside, uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to us, as always, guys. You can rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play and etc. Uh, Patreon can be found at patreon.com forward slash metacast ASOYAF if you want to get access to episodes early, special episodes, show notes, etc. Uh, you can follow us on social media at metacast ASOYAF on Twitter. Our email is metacast ASOYAF at gmail.com. Personally speaking, you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter and at portquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at BrandonBeefish on Twitter, BrandonBeefish on Reddit, and my website is called wars and politics licensefire.wordpress.com so thanks everyone for joining us for this episode join us next time for our introduction to king's landing and the schemers therein with catlin Four. thank you so much to lml for joining us today and we will see you guys next time Unless this Jeff, he doesn't like good music. (laughs) And with that, good night, sweet prince. Good night. See ya. The Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin, LML, and Brendan Beefish. The music you hear is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>